Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. How you doing this morning, Manila? Oh, pretty good. You know, looking at all this news with the madness of money just being shoveled. Just, 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 yep. it's not even shoveled. They're using like full-on excavators and bulldozers to just pile that money. Oh, they would have to since it's $39 billion or basically $40 billion. By the way, more than what Joe Biden asked for. I know. It's, Isn't Biden, that crazy? Biden's like, can I have, hey, can I borrow 40 bucks? And it's like, Congress being like, Joe, here's 2000 Yeah. Don't, don't worry about it. Yeah. But I asked for 40. Okay. No, don't, just take it. Just take it. Just take, just take it. it. We're trying to win a war. We're at war. And then somebody points out, actually, we're not at war. So when you're thinking about that, and then you flip the channel and you see American moms unable to find baby formula, Joe Biden's attention is focused on Ukraine instead of applying pressure to the manufacturers of these baby formulas to ramp up production. And you know what the companies are going to say, Jamar? They're going to say, oh, inflation, the cost to produce is up, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, we can't make enough of a profit margin, so we're slowing down production. Correct. No, Joe Biden, you need to step in over there. There are thousands and thousands of babies across this country who, for necessity, it's not because our mom doesn't want to breastfeed or chest feed. Uh, it's that because they have health, their health needs. Correct. So they may not be able to. They may right. And yeah. the women may not be able to, the babies may maybe not able to take in natural breast milk. For whatever reason, there is no excuse right now that American parents and their innocent infant children are having to go without when we have this prosperous country that can help. All he has to do is pay a little attention to the everyday people, but instead, his attention is hegemony and poking the Russian bear. And that's where we're at today. And that's when you wake up and you think of all that and you go, God, what is wrong with this country? I mean, you could go further than that. You could say women um, not having milk. You could say people paying money for, let's say, like things like insulin or rationing, yep. those particular medical products. You could say people foregoing, going to hospitals because they don't want to deal with the medical bills as a result. Or the people being eaten alive by college debt. Or all of those things. All of those things. He, and then add can, in inflation. They can, they can do something about it. Well, the weird part is. They can. It's policy. is actually driving that. I know. I mean, if you think about it, so the money... technically, they are doing something. They are doing something. It's just it's the unfortunate reality of what they're doing. It's just the other way. Yeah. When Saki says, you got to pay for our values, got to pay for our values, what is she saying? And she also says, Putin price hike. They're creating a link themselves between what is taking place in Ukraine and what is taking place um, in regards to here or inflation. And they accept on some level. And here's the catch. It was the economic war that caused that inflation, not the invasion. It was their response to it. So not only did you provoke a conflict, but then the actions that you took after that created the context for everything now. And now preventing the war from coming to a close by pushing Zelensky to not 
come Let, to peace terms. Let's not forget, you brought up a good point. It's the economic war that began during the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. And for all of Biden's hokey pokey saying, when we get, we get into office, we're going to fix all of that. You know, it's the economy stupid idea, right? Yeah. He gets into office and guess what? What does he do with China? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. He behaves based on the Trump doctrine yeah. with China. Nothing has changed. A lot of it has been a Trump doctrine. Right. And it's remained in place. So this economic war that we don't forget, we're still at technically an economic war with China, technically, mm-hmm. because Trump started it and Biden has not ended it. So that's leading us to where we're at with inflation today, uh, the formula shortages that we're seeing today. Yeah. And you couple that with just wild giveaways to Eastern Europe. Here we are. Insane. Insane. Here we are. Happy Wednesday. I keep saying the American public should be up oh, Thursday. No, oh, no. Wednesday. Today's Wednesday. Wednesday. Oh, man, this week is going back. Wednesday, May 11th. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. Um, Don't get too excited. It's Wednesday. Yeah, this week is going back. (laughs) Far slower um, than I expected. But yeah, it's unfortunate, right? You have all of these difficulties at home, and Biden's focus is squarely on Ukraine. Absolutely. We must keep it in our sphere of influence. It's astonishing. But there are a lot of headlines to get to, a lot of news. So let's hop to that. First, in more COVID news, because that is still a thing. Last night, billionaire philanthropist and Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates says he has COVID. He tweeted that out and he says he's experiencing mild symptoms and is following expert advice by isolating, he says, until he's healthy again. So that's out on Twitter. Then more domestic news here. The U.S. House of Representatives have passed a supplemental funding bill for Ukraine that will provide the country with almost $40 billion in assistance amid Russia's special military operation, including more than $20 billion itself in defense aid. That bill passed 366 to 55 as voting continued on, but it looks like a, a shoe in The measure is expected to be cleared by the U.S. Senate as well, once taken up by congressional lawmakers for a vote there. So the lower chamber, what a snap. Everybody's in. The high-powered Hollywood attorney we were talking about yesterday, the sugar bro, who's providing financial and strategic advice, he calls it, advice to Hunter Biden. Currently now in the crosshairs of a federal investigation into his own taxes and purportedly shady overseas business deals. He's a... being viewed by some of the U.S. president's allies as a potential liability. You don't say. That's the New York Times reporting, too. They are apparently uneasy over the fact that Mr. Kevin Morris, best known for brokering the more than half-billion-dollar licensing deal for the co-creators of South Park, has taken on this role of close personal confidant to Biden's eldest son. They are also concerned that the president's son may be receiving financial assistance from a wealthy benefactor that, you know, could reflect poorly on Papa Joe. That's according to some insiders cited by the New York Times. In international news, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said that he regrets that the UN has missed an opportunity to reach a potential solution on the Ukraine crisis. 
The top Russian diplomat made his statement during a joint press conference with his Omani counterpart, Saeed Badr al-Busaidi, in Muscat. Quote, taking into account the interest shown by the UN Secretary General, Antonio Gutierrez, we advise him, first of all, to turn his appeals to the Kiev authorities to demand that they stop preventing civilians from leaving the areas of the military operation. Then the U.S. Navy has sent the USS Port Royal, a Ticonderoga-class guided missile cruiser of the 7th Fleet, to just cruise through the body of water separating Taiwan from mainland China. Just a normal day sailing, you know, in between Taiwan and mainland China. The ship remained in international waters while navigating the corridor on Tuesday in a mission meant to demonstrate America's, quote, commitment to a free and open Indo-Pacific, according to their official statement. Then in tech news, a group, group of researchers at the University of Bath, that's in the UK, conducted a study in which they found that taking a week-long break from social media actually improves a person's well-being as well as reduces depression and anxiety. The authors of that study also suggest that taking a break from social media may be recommended as a way to help people manage their mental health in the future. I am all about that, Jamaro. I ghost on social media every so often. Just in a heartbeat. Yeah, it's just, it's not, it's not good for you. It's not the way Mother Nature intended your, your eyes and brain to, to work. A lot of stuff is not the way Mother Nature intended. But this stuff is, is, like, is like crack. It is meant, the algorithms are meant to... Keep you interested. Right, it is meant to fire off certain hormones in your brain. And that's just, that's not healthy. And that's why the young people all have like depression and anxiety. And I'm like, eh, just unplug. Go take a walk. Go to the park. They used to say it about video games too. And and that's true as well. Because of the the certain light streams that get into your your eyes and the even just the flashing lights. It's all meant to 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 deprogram what nature put in there. Mm-hmm. And and I think human evolution hasn't gotten there yet to be able to counter those effects. Yeah, to be honest, if that's the case, that's like 90% of our life. There, I mean, if you think of television, no, no, I agree. especially, or even, I would even say this kind of capitalistic incentive for doing things for cash as opposed to doing things for the reason that you're doing them. I mean, that's a long tread of stuff. I agree with you. I agree with you on some of it, I think. But I mean, there's, there's human evolution involved. We're just not there. Technology happens so fast. Yeah. You know, in, in the last, the latter part of the 20th century. So mankind has not yet been able to, um, to rewire its own brain to deal with this kind of technology. And I and think by, we'll get there. And by the way, we'll sometimes it's not even rewiring. I mean, some of that stuff is physical. Like the stuff that we're pumping in the air and we're inhaling, the chemicals we're dropping into the um, water, or for that matter, like the little plastic molecules that they're found in, finding in our um, biology or our cells. Oh, yeah, because it's, it's all the plastics yeah. in, our, in our water. Yeah, so all this stuff is, all, yeah. modern technology has changed mankind and oh, our yes. bodies have not, have not gotten there, unfortunately. So, so, yeah, I get off of social media. You take breaks. Good mental health breaks. And in Earth Science News, a recent study by the World Meteorological Organization, or WMO, has indicated there is a 93% chance that at least one year out of the next five, 
will exceed 2016 as the warmest year on record, as well as 93% chance that the next five years will be warmer overall than the previous five. I believe that. And in business news, consumer prices in Denmark have jumped to the highest levels in 38 years. Official figures from Statistics Denmark showed that Tuesday. According to that agency, the Danish Consumer Price Index jumped 5.4% in March to 6.7% in April. Prices soared amid the rise in global energy costs against the backdrop of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. The specific key inflation drivers in Denmark were electricity, nat gas, food, and tobacco. I didn't, I just didn't know that was still a big thing. And then this day in history, way, way, way back in 330, Constantine, I can never say this, Constantinople, Constantinople. Constantinople. I could never say that. Constantinople or Byzantium, that one I got, uh, becomes the capital of the Roman Empire. And then in 868, the earliest surviving dated, it's dated, printed book produced in China. Then in 1981, we're taking a big jump there. (laughs) (laughs) No, right. From 868 to 1981. Yada, yada, yada. Yes. Thousands of years. Some stuff happened. And then 1981, the musical Cats premiered. And I used to be terrified of those billboards, the humans and the... Yeah. It was... In the cat costumes. Yeah, that just freaked me out. I never liked those as a kid. Ooh, creepy. In 1985, 56 football fans die in a fire uh, at the stadium there. In 1996, Value Jet Flight 592 crashes into the Florida Everglades shortly after takeoff. In 1998, India executes a series of nuclear weapons tests. That's when they're like, surprise, we're nuclear. And then in 2000, more in India, okay? India's population officially reached 1 billion people with Asta Aurora named India's billionth baby. That's the year 2000. So I think the population has soared beyond that now. Uh, And that is going to do it for your headlines this Wednesday, May 11th. You are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. Wow, one billion people. Well, they're past that now. Yeah. China's way. And I love the fact they had the name of the person who basically officially turned over. Yeah. That baby baby now is like 22. Yeah. Yeah. The one billionth person. Imagine that's like on your resume you're like, yeah, I went to this school, that school. Number one billion. awards, billionth baby in India. Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? Oh, that's awesome. Let's do this. Let's take a break. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. 
If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. America should be apoplectic, to call, put it mildly. The astonishing situation basically took place where the House of Representatives gave Biden $7 billion more dollars than the gratuitous, ungodly amount of $33 billion he was looking to dump into a losing war. And this is while inflation goes through the roof. We are breaking records on this stuff. It is astonishing when you think about it. When you think about all the calamities and the issues that are basically here, and Biden's entire focus seems to be over there. So not only do you provoke a conflict that didn't need to exist? You kick over the Yanukovych government in 2014. You choose the people who are going to be a, a part of that government. You prevent, or for that matter, refuse to push Zelensky to fill the obligations of the Minsk to Accords. And even after that, even after that, with Moscow pleading for security guarantees and security arrangements, what was said by Europe? Russia doesn't have security guarantees. NATO is love and light, flowers and rainbows. And our bombs only hit bad people. That's just the truth of it. And so in a situation, we're basically saying, yeah, no, we're not going to come to any kind of agreement on this particular issue. And to make that situation even worse, where Zelensky behind the scenes was being told, you're not going to be a part of NATO. Nobody would say it up front, meaning this immoral situation where all of them knew and accepted but because of issues of ego, or for that matter, um, issues of these kind of grandiose ideas about who they are in the world and their capabilities and effects in the world, they chose to basically say no. You can call it cultural chauvinism, um, whatever you want to call it. They chose to say no to something that all of them behind the scenes entirely understood wasn't going to be the case. So after provoking a conflict, and I didn't even hit the expansion of NATO, or for that matter, William Burns saying net means net, describing the exact situation that we're confronted with right now, 10 years ago. I've called this either a magnificent failure of Western policy or a combination of Western policy. You choose. I tend to lean on the side of the combination. All of them understood the red line. It's the reason why they say we won't move an inch to the east. All of them understood what that meant as NATO continued to expand after the fall of the Soviet Union. So either they were comically ridiculous and insane and incompetent, or they took one action after the next to create this particular provocation. You choose. The point I'm making here is all along the way, they understood what was going to take place and that this was going to be a red line. All right, so great. So after provoking a conflict, they decided to have an economic war. And based on what Saki said, Putin's, uh, what is it, Putin's price hike. Okay, so on some level, you recognize that the war is directly related to the increases in prices that people are seeing either at the gas pump or, for that matter, over food or, for that matter, even the famines that are going to take place as a direct result or the shortages and lack of certain supplies and materials. You get that. And what does Saki say? You got to pay for our values. You got to pay for our values. And again, I ask the question, whose values are these? And why is it that people like you, who's going to be working on MSNBC, are entirely and completely isolated from the results of those actions? It is people like us, the rest of this public, the poor, the middle class, that is going to be directly 
in the firing line to this level of inflation and this price hikes and increases. That is the truth of the matter. What Biden is doing is driving this increase. And he is doubling down on it. So in one sense, not only did you provoke a conflict, in a second sense, you're preventing the conflict from coming to some kind of peace talks. Think back to Turkey, where you had the situation where Zelensky was in peace talks and Zelensky put certain things on the table. We will not be military aligned. We won't necessarily allow military to be stored um, in our um, presence or in the country of Ukraine. If they're going to be some kind of, let's say, military uh, exercises that is going to have to be agreed upon with Russia or for Moscow. And the issue of the Donuts, or let's say the Donbass regions, was off the table in the context of any sort of security agreements that was going to be issued. Meaning, Zelensky was putting real things on the table in regards to these peace talks. Yes, it was still going to be a non-starter, but that belies the fact that he was engaging in those peace talks. You get this right here out of Ukrainian press. According to Ukrainista Pravda, sources close to Zelensky, the prime minister of the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson, who appeared in the capital almost without warning, were two simple messages. The first is that Putin is a war criminal and should be pressured, not negotiated with, which is, again, what got them into this in the first place. And the second is that even if Ukraine is ready to sign some agreements on guarantees, they are not. Johnson's position was that the collective war, which back in February, has suggested that Zelensky should surrender and flee, now felt that Putin was not really as powerful as they had previously imagined and that here was a chance to press him. Three days after Johnson left for Britain, Putin went public and says the talks with Ukraine had turned into a dead end, which after which, after you got the situation with all of this money and everything else being dumped into Ukraine, this ridiculous amount of $33 billion or $40 billion. The point here is that the Western powers made this point to Zelensky, don't surrender, or not even surrender, don't come to peace terms. We don't like the fact that you are coming to peace terms. And you've even seen in Western publications them admit the dirty truth is that many NATO nations would like to see Ukraine fight to the last dead Ukrainian as opposed to come to some kind of peace terms with Moscow. So on one sense, you provoke a conflict. On the other sense, you decided to have an economic war that basically drives up prices across the board. And that's only going to get worse. They're expecting it to get worse. And now you and your other gang of idiots, your gang of vassal state gipsuit wearers in Europe have basically decided also now to prevent the conflict from coming to a close, driving the levels of inflation or driving the prices increases that much more. Not only did you start it, you're keeping it going. And what is the consequence of this? Well, you have the Bank of England basically calling that there's going to be a recession and inflation is going to hit 10%. You have the beating heart of Europe in Germany who has productivity drops that are rather significant. You have many of the companies in Germany basically saying, look, we cannot live without gas. And more to the point, not just not live without gas, even the oil restrictions are going to cause pain in the country itself. You move over to the United States, what, a 1.4% GDP drop that the New York Times says, hey, that number is better than we expected. Okay, good for you. That does have real-world consequences, though. They're increasing rate hikes in order to deal with the issues of inflation. And the issues of inflation itself has been eating into the very population of this country, meaning the actions that Biden is taking abroad is having real-world physical matter consequences to the economic realities and life of the people in this country, especially 
the people that were dumb enough to go out there and vote for Joe Biden in the first place. My mom told me yesterday, I am so glad I did not vote for him. And I said, same here, because he has been completely and utterly incompetent as he shuffles us to the brink of oblivion one step after the next. And so when Biden comes out and gives a speech that says how much he cares about inflation and everything else, how do you care about inflation when all of the actions that you've taken in this office in relation to Ukraine has basically driven that very inflation that you are basically telling people that you care about? And of course, you got to tell them because there's nothing that you did to give the impression that you actually really do care about it. After all, when this was brought up to Saki, got to pay for our values, got to pay for our values. Okay, what are those values worth? Meaning how much do we really have to pay in order to keep Ukraine in the U.S. orbit after knocking over the Yanukovych government? How much is it worth? Right here, this is Washington Post economic columnist and editorial board member, Heather Long. Where Americans are seeing the big inflation spikes. Well, of course, they gave you the top level number of like 7 or 8%, whatever. Well, that's a top level number. When you get into the details, fuel and oil, 70% increase. Gas, 48% increase. Used cars, 35% increase. Hotels, 29% increase. Airfare, 24%. Utility gas, 22%. Bacon, 18%. Oranges, 18%. Furniture, 16%. Beef, 16%. New cars, 13%. Chicken, 13%. Milk, 13%. Appliances, 12%. Fish, eggs, coffee, 11%. Food at home, 10%. Rent, 4.5%. To make this that much more clear, when Gallup recently did a poll where it was asking Americans, how do you feel about the current situation? And you had spikes, especially among the poor and the middle class, on whether or not they're going to be able to pay their bills, whether they feel financially secure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So basically, the president of the United States has taken a policy and is doubling down on that policy at a time when the U.S. population is being hit by the consequences of those policies between Biden and the idiots in Europe, the vassal states of Europe, as I call them. and not just being hit by those policies, with the media assuaging the damage of those policies and even the context to why that stuff is happening in the first place with basic propaganda. It's obscene. If Biden cares about these things, Biden wouldn't be doubling down. And from the standpoint of priorities, it's very clear where his priorities lie, and it is not with the American public. When I was younger, my mom never made more than $15 an hour um, when she worked. She was a single parent, raising a kid entirely by herself. And when we look at the world, we look at the world through this lens, or when I look at the world, I look at the, through that lens. What would it have been like in a situation where fuel prices, food prices, prices across the board dramatically increase? What would it look like? How does that constrain a budget that is already too constrained? And when you think about it, what, most Americans don't have $600 in the bank. I think it was like 60% or more. And so, you already have a population that is vulnerable, and you have just made that population that much more vulnerable through your policies. Okay, what's Biden's response to this? Biden's response is to get a bill passed for $39 billion, basically $40 billion to Ukraine. So while the public is dealing with all of these issues, whether it's medical bills, whether it's homelessness, whether it's food insecurity, whether it's rent insecurity, whether it's increases in the price of food and their capability and ability to respond to it economically, whatever it is, Biden's focus, $40 billion in aid to a losing war that never needed to take place in the first place. 
It's obscene. It's absolutely obscene. And this public should be apoplectic over it. You guys are listening to Fault Lines, Thomas, Chan. Back in a moment, the one and only Mark Sloboda. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And, of course, events have continued to go on in Ukraine and the war with a lot of things going on around it, including a supposed attack on Snake Island that was basically repulsed. You also have the region or the military, Russian military, making movements in the region of Severodonetsk, Donetsk. And you have this interesting article that came out in the New York Times where they seem to be grudgingly dragged to the water. Right here, quote, The Russian Defense Ministry said Tuesday that its forces of eastern Ukraine Ukraine had advanced to the border between Donetsk and Luhansk, the two Russian-speaking provinces where Moscow-backed separatists had been fighting Ukraine's army for eight years. You mean the Ukrainian military has been killing them for eight years after the coup government took over? The ministry's assertion, if confirmed, strengthens the prospect that Russia could soon gain complete control over the region known as Donbass, compared to just a third of it before February 24th. They're saying the quiet part aloud. They're preparing the public for collapse in these regions, understanding what that means. Up to this point, they had Zelensky on the green screen, and this was never uttered. At the very least, not in Western press like this. To have a conversation about this and other issues that are taking place on the ground in Ukraine, we're joined by the one and only voice of wisdom and truth, Mark Sloboda. He's an international relations and security analyst and easily one of my favorite people to talk to. Mark How's it going, my man? Doing okay this morning? Jamaro Manila, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Fault Lines. And uh, it's always great to talk to you guys, too. Oh, man, thank you. I totally appreciate it. So I wanted to get into a few stories that are going on and that I find to be a little bit weird. So before I get to the weird part, let's talk about what's taking place on the ground. Um, it seems that Russia and its artillery, not to mention the Donbass um, militias, have been making significant or the very least steady progress in the East, so much so that Western media at this point apparently has to acknowledge it. On top of that, it has to do with Severodonetsk. And it sounds like there's a Ukrainian military contingent that's there. Um, and that contingent is a, a being surrounded or encircled. Explain to me what's taking place in the movements that are on the ground it, so we can get kind of a framing and a context to what is occurring on the ground in Ukraine, especially in the East as Moscow continues to make progress. Yeah, right now, again, okay, so the the majority of the Ukrainian regular military, uh, some 50% of it, um, uh, has been holed up on the edges of the Donetsk and Lugansk administrative regions, uh, where they have, over the last eight years, built really extensive fortifications. We're talking um, uh, meters thick of concrete right, uh, fortifications uh, in places. Um, and um, there are anywhere between 60 to 100,000 uh, Kiev regime forces there, at least uh, at the beginning of the conflict, although they've lost significant numbers uh, since then. Um, and uh, primarily, uh, we have seen this being whittled down to a big redoubt uh, a kind of a triangle between uh, Kramatorsk, Slavyansk, and Severodonetsk. 
kind of a, a triangle there. Uh, and this is an important symbolic region because uh, Krematorsk and Slavyansk, this is where the actual uh, rebellion in East Ukraine uh, against the overthrow of the government in 2014 began. Uh, it was taken back uh, by Kiev regime forces. Uh, but this is very symbolic uh, for Donetsk and Lugansk. Um, and uh, right now, uh, they have essentially been enveloped in a cauldron uh, with only a small area uh, uh, to the west that has not been fully enveloped, and that has seen its uh, railroad traffic disrupted by Russian destruction of electrical uh, substations. And what is going on right now, basically, is the creation of mini cauldrons, right, separating different areas of that big uh, bastion, separating them from each other, isolating them, and taking care of them one by one. And it looks like, you know, the first of, of the big three significant areas is Severodonetsk. And it has just in the last 48 or so hours seen its last supply lines fully cut. Um, uh, Kiev regime forces have retreated from a, a uh, another uh, small city immediately uh, to the uh, west of uh, Severodonetsk. They've just retreated out of there because their positions was no longer acceptable. And the reason they're doing all a lot of this is because while head on, kind of like Maginot Line, think um, the uh, Kiev regime forces, uh, you know, are extremely strong in defense. But as soon as you start flanking and going around and enveloping them, those fortifications become much much less effective. Um, and um, being cut off of supply lines of ammunition, uh, food, water, of course, uh, really reduces uh, uh, combat effectiveness, you know, uh, down to nothing. And uh, Severodonetsk is, is the first of these big salients that is very steadily eroding. So one of the other ones is Papaznaya, and this was reportedly taken over the weekend. Now, explain the military significance of this. And my understanding is this is kind of high up or a high region where they could put artillery or something. Please explain. Yeah, you're 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 pretty well informed on this. Then you don't even need me. Um, this is high ground, right? Uh, and if you've if you've if you've seen uh, the, uh, the the Star Trek uh, reimagined series, uh, according to uh, Ben Kenobi telling uh, uh, Anakin Skywalker. I've got the high ground, right? You know, you know uh, how important high ground is. It's even more important for Jedi's. It's even more important uh, for artillery. Uh, and th very much this is a, a trench fortification and artillery grinding combat going on right now. And uh, in Papasnaya, um, you saw a lot of Kiev regime forces, uh, some retreat and a lot surrender. Uh, under the pressure that was beginning to, uh, you know, hit them. They're, they're, to be fair, they're being hit with a very obscene amount of artillery day and night now. Um, and uh, that's got to be, uh, you know, something that none of us can really, really imagine because we have not seen a combat of this scale anywhere since World War II. Right. This, this is, uh, you know, it is certainly not artillery uh, duels of this scale, although the dueling is mostly on one side at this point. And Papasnaya, this elevated position will further erode further Kiev regime forces positions uh, after this one. It, it is a significant tactical 
um, gain on the battlefield uh, in this eastern Ukrainian region there. And that was in kind of the southwest of the cauldron. So you can see while we were talking before about Severodonetsk in the northeast of the cauldron, it's it, it coming at all sides. Hey, Mark, uh, I think Jamarl's going to be too polite to point out, but I think he's going to secretly be very upset with you that you conflated Star Trek with Star Wars analogy. Did I, did I say Star Wars? Did you I said, say Star Trek? You said Trek. And, and Jamarl is all about Star Trek. Yeah, see, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a nerd myself, too. Um, and I, I'm sorry, I was uh, a little too military nerded out, and it temporarily overwhelmed my normally astute, I meant Star Wars, Anakin, you know, uh, of course, rather than, say, Star Trek, which has been totally destroyed with Discovery and Picard. Strange New World, oh, not Picard. Okay, I'm not going to fight with you over Picard. Discovery, yes. Yeah, see, I, I can't, Strange New Worlds, the captain just strikes me as way too Mormon for me. To really? I love Strange New Worlds. Oh, Mark. Oh, I haven't been able to over. watch anything. I haven't seen, been able to watch anything seriously since. Deep Space Nine was exceptional. Exceptional. Political. Especially the late. Yeah. Politics, the war, the buildup. Exceptional. See, I, I'm left out of that conversation because I'm more on the Star Wars side. But Jamarl has been using a lot of Star Trek analogies to compare what's happening right now in Ukraine. <laughs> um, so I can't, I can't add to that. <laughs> I, I missed this conversation and I, I feel I feel uh, left out myself <laughs> we're, we're gonna have to bring you in off air when Jamarl uh, teaches us all about how you can compare what's happening with the, the new series with what's happening currently in Eastern Europe um, but I want to bring something here to the footsteps of Washington because uh, what is it today or tomorrow is the kickoff of the Aishan Summit or ASEAN as everybody else in the world calls it, but most people in the U.S., because, you know, it's spelled A-S-E-A-N, so Americans tend to say A-Sean. Um, but the summit kicks off. B Biden is hosting it. I mean, it's, it's mostly virtual from what I understand, but either way, Biden is supposed to be the host. How do you think, uh, I don't think all of this is going to be broadcast, obviously, but how do you think Biden is going to apply the pressure on his ASEAN uh, community to either back him against Russia or push them on the issue of Taiwan because we have those fires burning as well, or at least it's, it's kicking up some dust. And, you know, China just issued a, a rebuke of the State Department uh, framing of their support for Taiwan as if Taiwan is solely independent. And they kind of rebuked them for saying, hey, I thought you said you believed in the one China policy. Where are we at, bro? And that's kind of where, where the Aishan Summit is going to pick up on the heels of the State Department really offending China. And personally, I feel like Biden is going to use this to try to get the Asian allies to rally behind the U.S. support of Ukraine. Yeah, okay. So um, the, the ASEAN states uh, largely... Uh, with with uh, I, I think one notable exception with Singapore have refrained from participating in the West's economic war of sanctions against uh, Russia. And uh, you know when you're referring to the world as sanctioning Russia, well, I mean that yeah, that's true. If you the, the West is the world, and the rest of the world doesn't count, including Southeast Asia. 
so uh, undoubtedly the U.S. is going to be starting to threaten uh, individual uh, countries and companies uh, in uh, Southeast Asia uh, with uh, secondary sanctions, uh, you know, particularly looking at the big ticket of, of energy. Um, which, uh, you know, right now, uh, it, the prices for oil in particular, uh, you know, is extremely high on the market as a, as a result of these sanctions and the EU trying to do without. Um, and uh, the Russian uh, oil is now available at a discount. And we've already seen India, for instance, gobble up large amounts of that despite uh, U.S. threats of sanctions against them. Uh, and I, I think that we're going to be, you know, uh, seeing this pressure now applied to Southeast Asia. Um, uh, it, semiconductors is another big thing the U.S. is trying to uh, put the squeeze on. Uh, and Singapore has been uh, somewhat participating in that. Uh, but when it comes to, you know, uh, at the same time, kind of insanely, the Biden administration is is not only engaged in a very thin proxy war against Russia, but they seem to be heating things up with uh, Taiwan at the same time. The State Department has basically removed from its website uh, previous uh, longstanding mentions of of uh, what uh, amount to the one child uh, one China policy. Uh, and they removed previous statements saying they did not support the independence of Taiwan. And uh, if you don't think that that has been noticed in Beijing and uh, also in the rest of the Southeast Asian states, because they don't really want to see a war in their backyard right now. Um, I'll just read it. The United States, this is what it was before. The United States recognized the government of, of the People's Republic of China as a sole legal government of China, acknowledging the Chinese position that there is but one China and Taiwan is part of that China. In the second paragraph, the United States does not support Taiwan independence. Now, when you flip it to now, as a leading democracy and technological powerhouse, Taiwan is a key U.S. partner in the Indo-Pacific region. The United States and Taiwan share similar values, deep commercial, economic links, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those first two lines, though, that make it very clear of the U.S. position, removed. That is removed. Right. It's, it's what you don't say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's huge. It's huge uh, that it has been done and that it has being done now when there's so much else going on. Um, is it a, a, a really misguided Biden administration attempt uh, to uh, punish China for not being fully on board with its sanctions against Russia? If so, yeah, because a threatening another potential World War Three conflict at the same time is so much the way to go about that. I, I think we're going to have to disagree on that. Do you expect anything else from this? I mean, because let's be honest. From a rational point of view, and, you know, rationalist, rationality is not necessarily an absolute, but if we tether rationality to what is in the best domestic interest of the people in your country, none of this has met those standards. None of it. And so I am not entirely shocked that brinksmanship would be what Biden goes to because that's what all of this has been leading up to this. I mean, for God's sake, when Zelensky says behind the scenes, they were telling me I could never be a part of NATO. However, nobody would say it up front. What is that? Like, that's what I mean. Like, it is comically ridiculous policy. And so now they're creating a provocation with China who, look, if you think the decoupling with Russia is bad, you haven't seen nothing yet when it comes to China. Well, guys, don't forget. I, I think I don't think it was the U.S. Actually, I think it was uh, I forget which state 
within the European Union that's in NATO. But I feel like one of those countries said, hey, let's expand NATO into the Asia Pacific. Stoltenberg, I believe he said. Was it Stoltenberg, Jens Stoltenberg? Jens Stoltenberg, yeah, the Secretary uh, General of NATO. how crazy is that? You want, really? He, well, he specifically said that NATO needs to focus. This was before the whole Russia-Ukraine uh, 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 conflict uh, broke out with the Russian intervention uh, d- directly in February. Uh, but Jens Stoltenberg in the last year has said, uh, trying to reposition NATO again as a, a platform for the projection of U.S. military force around the world needs to focus on on China, right? Because, you know, North Atlantic, uh, hegemonic, global, whatever, you know, I mean, <laughs> it, it has no bounds. It has no limit. It just how it just sounds so crazy to me when you think of that statement yeah. and you think of the the original roots of NATO and why it existed in the first place was to counter a Soviet Union. The Soviet Union died in 1991. And and then later in 1999, NATO went and broke up Yugoslavia and bombed the hell out of them for over three months. And now we're talking about expanding into Asia? That, I mean, I feel like China would look at Yugoslavia in 1999 and think, yeah, um, you guys are already posturing with Taiwan this way. Uh, 1999 wasn't that long ago, and look what NATO did there. So, I mean, and NATO has already been playing second fiddle, you know, uh, you know, providing uh, uh, political and then de facto occupation afterwards for the U.S. in both Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, as, as well as the more overt operations uh, directly by NATO in Libya, uh, which is, you know, still well outside uh, Europe itself. Um, And uh, you've already seen that this is this is what NATO is now. NATO is the platform for U.S. uh, power projection around the world in support of global military hegemony. Uh, that that is their raison d'art now. That is that is their purpose. What, what in inside they call out of theater operation. Uh, I want to get into another story, and this has to do with Ukraine turns off Europe bound gas. Now, I didn't entirely understand this. So it says Russian glass conglomerate Gazprom has received no notification of a force majeure or any obstacles um, to continue transit of gas through a junction in the Lugansk region. The company said on Tuesday, after Ukraine's operator, OGTSU, announced that it would halt further deliveries starting May 11th due to the presence of Russian occupiers. Um, right, gas transit uh, declared force majeure on Tuesday, saying it was impossible to continue the transit of gas through the connection point and compressor station located in Lugansk region, as OGTSU personnel, quote, cannot carry out operational and technological control um, over, I think this is the Sokernovra, Connector point. Um, the company cannot continue to fulfill its contractual obligations. What does this mean? I saw this and I was like, "Oh my god!" But I don't know the con- like I don't know the gravity of it and the ramifications of it. Yeah. Okay. So this is basically the Kiev regime saying that uh, being angry at the EU for not cutting off uh, all energy supplies. Uh, that it it purchases from Russia and saying, here, let me help you. Here's a third of the gas that we transit, that Russia uh, transits to Europe. We're going to shut it off. And we're 
it, what they said was they can't carry out operation and technological control over the connector point, which is absurd because, uh, you know, the Kiev regime hasn't been in, in control of, of large amounts of these pipelines for eight years, uh, you know, since 2014, right? This is, this is entirely political. There, there is no technical. And this is despite the fact that, um, uh, according to Gazprom, uh, Ukraine, uh, uh, Ukrainian uh, gas companies, their technicians still have full access to both facilities, right? They're not excluded because of, of the, this is, again, this weird type of conflict that Russia is, is waging there. They have not interrupted, uh, you know, the access of uh, uh, Ukrainian uh, gas companies uh, to these facilities. So uh, Gazprom says there's absolutely no reason Technically, you know, for them to do this, this is purely political. And this is despite all the aid that, that the European countries, that the EU countries are giving uh, uh, Kiev at this point, it's not enough. So they're just going to shut the gas off of their own accord. How do you like them, Apple? <laughs> wow. What's the effect of that? I mean, what is your what is your going to do with that? Because Ukraine was still collecting transit fees, if I'm not mistaken. And so it's like now these guys are. I mean, that's astonishing. So what is Europe going to do with this? I mean, do they have any, I would imagine you would think that they would have enough clout considering the amount of money that Europe and the United States has given them. I mean, Europe, they were even talking about giving them, what, $5 billion to cover their expenses for a month or three months. You know what, guys, at, at the end of the day, this is that part of it is definitely bluster on the part of Ukraine and then bluster on the side of the EU being like, oh, yeah, good job. Very smart of you, Zelensky. That's wonderful. Meanwhile, they're like, Russia, thank you for keeping Nord Stream 1 open. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, this is kind of in, in you know, the EU has created such a public political hysteria over uh, this issue, right? The, how much they are in defense of this regime in Kiev and how they'll do nothing. Uh, you know, that there's nothing too great for them to ask, you know, except for energy, of course. Um, and they've even browbeat, right, the German uh, government into providing arms after, you know, sh naming and shaming them enough times for not providing enough lethal weapons. And, you know, they, they threw out, they said, no, we don't want to talk to the German president. We don't want to talk to Steinmeier. And then and then Germany basically, Steinmeier apologized, right, for uh, you know, for being wrong on on uh, you know Minsk protocols uh, for all these years, um, and and this is you know how does the EU come out now and um, publicly um, attack Kiev uh, for shutting off uh, gas to them? They they can't because they themselves. Uh, you know, have been saying that there's nothing we won't do and have been announcing plans themselves to, in the future, sometime, some undisclosed time in the future, stop the import of Russian coal, oil and gas. Uh, so now uh, Kiev has basically, you know, put them into a, a political tight spot. And uh, I imagine the EU will try to hash this out behind closed doors. But you have to remember that there are certain EU countries less dependent on Russian gas than others uh, that will be fully on board with this uh, and are fully on board with this. Um, and they don't, could not care less about the uh, citizens in, in EU countries that are, you know, 80 to 100 percent reliant on Russian gas. 
um, this this could get you know into a very nasty kind of under the sheets uh, political fight. Very interesting. Um, one last thing, Snake Allen, and maybe not the last thing, depending on time frame, but Snake Allen. So there was an assault over the weekend, and I guess you can say weekend going into Monday, um, on this idea of Snake Allen. And this was a little bit weird to me. It seemed that they were trying to do this for some kind of propagandistic win on Victory Day. That's the way it seemed, because I couldn't figure out any other militaristic reason for this other than saying, hey, look at what we were able to do. We were able to take this on the day of the Great Patriotic War came to an end. What's your take on this? Yeah, okay, so uh, Snake Island is really famous. It's this small little rock, right, off the, the coast of Ukraine. But it, it does have strategic implications being the only, you know, small rock out there uh, for uh, control of the sea lanes going uh, to uh, Ukraine, you know, particularly uh, into Odessa. Um, and, you know, uh, right now, uh, uh, Ukraine is not shipping anything out of their ports. They've mined their ports. And of course, Russia is also preventing access there. And Snake Island became famous because of this uh, hoax that the uh, Kiev regime perpetuated about these uh, martyrs, uh, this Ukrainian naval infantry that famously said, F you, Russian warship, uh, you know, when asked to surrender, uh, and that they all died to a man, you know, saying, uh, F you, Putin, and so on. Uh, of, of course, none of that actually happened. Uh, the 83 naval infantry surrendered without a fight, uh, and and this, and we're a little shocked to discover that they'd all been awarded posthumous awards for their bravery and so on. And this has spun a million T-shirts and coffee mugs and memes and Twitter cover uh, illustrations. But it, of course, it was all fake. It was all it's all you know the noble lie of propaganda uh, in war. Uh, but now they attempted a new assault that went very very bad for them. They lost some 30 drones, including at least eight of these uh, Turkish uh, heavy combat drones, uh, the TB2 Bayraktars, 10 helicopters, four, uh, four jets, one of them a fighter bomber, three ships, more than 50 troops in repeated attempts to take this island before May 9th. And the Western media and commentary it was insane on, oh, Russia needs to take Donbass by May 9th to declare you know, a big victory on Victory Day, which is the biggest holiday of the Russian year, and all these things about Victory Day. And it turns out that it's the Kiev regime that tried very hard to deliver a PSYOP kind of um, embarrassment to Putin on Victory Day. And they failed badly in it. Uh, they, they suffered quite a lot. Russian they suffered some losses too, but they were rather minor in comparison. And they're really trying to, to downplay this uh, right now. Uh, but this was a substantial loss of equipment. And they could not really have benefited. There's no way they could have permanently reoccupied this island uh, under the, the, the presence of the Russian Navy there. Ukraine really doesn't have a Navy to contest that, right? This was solely for propaganda value. And all of that equipment and all of those lives lost and equipment, or that's the uh, equipment that Kiev can't easily replace, uh, if at all. Um, so um, it was a big, big failure for them that the Western media and particularly the Kiev, the Ukrainian media of, of the Kiev regime is trying to avoid talking about. And, and you know what else, guys? Next month is um, another round of the BRICS summit for 2022. China is the chair country this year because it rotates, right? So China's hosting and they are expecting um, 
all the, the BRICS leaders to head to China, including Vladimir Putin. But, you know, we know that his schedule is kind of tentative right now, but they're expecting it to be around June 23rd, 24th, as they say, and they expect that Vladimir Putin will, will be there. So here you have Brazil, Russia, India, China, all hanging out together next month. That sounds like if we're having economic doom and gloom already right now, that summit, I feel like, can be a pivotal point for many countries in the West and what that can potentially do to our economies if they decide, yeah, you know what? We're going to sanction back. Okay, so they're not going to—I don't think that the break—I mean, first of all, there's, there is political and economic differences, and we have to remember that India is part of the Quad, and under Bolsonaro, Brazil has been much closer to the U.S., but it is symbolic. Right. Because these countries are all big countries, not a part of the U.S. Uh, uh, war with sanctions on Russia. I thought the whole world was sanctioning Russia. Yeah. You know, well, the whole world, if the whole world is just the West and not South America and Africa and Southeast Asia and China and India and, and you know, so on. But um, what they could do is make steps towards more, you know, more efforts, more um, practice put into avoiding the use of the dollar and now the euro as reserve currency. Mark, always appreciate your um, appearances on the show. Absolutely. Mark Sloboda is an international relations and security analyst. You can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark Sloboda one and find him on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ramshi. You guys are listening to Fucklines, Thomas, Chan, Back in a moment. Fault lines. Fault lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner. I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And floating around somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means, excuse me, you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. Great conversation with Saboda. Always love those conversations. But let's get into our headlines. In the news, in COVID news, uh-oh, COVID is back. We've no, take, it's still here. It's still here. It's Again. still here. And, you know, there that's that's one of the other anomalies with the, um, not to, not to beat a dead horse. And it's, I suppose it's not a dead horse at this point because it's still going on. But, you know, they were trying, they're expecting 100,000 new COVID cases in the fall. They were asking for like $20 billion. They decoupled the COVID money from the $40 billion that they were going to give Joe Biden and increased the $33 million at Joe Biden, $33 billion to 40 billion. Think about that. So they're expecting, they accept, okay, there's going to be like 100,000 new COVID cases. However, what's important in this moment is that Ukraine gets 10, roughly 10 billion more dollars than we were going to give them in the first place. So yeah, screw COVID. Let's deal with Ukraine. It's Here's a tip. It's like leaving a tip, yeah. a big tip. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, for, for Zelensky doing a good job. Yeah, while ignoring the fact that your public, where you have a million people that have basically died from COVID, is going to have more people infected, and you don't have the money to back it up. I mean, it's just—it's uh, babies hungry, people yeah. out of work, across the people board. People can't stuff. afford the people that have jobs can't afford to buy stuff or food. Wow, who cares? Yeah, pay for our values. Cares. Pay for our values. 
That's, that's, that's what it is, Manila. Got to pay for our values. Um, but I digress. In COVID news, on Tuesday, billionaire philanthropist and Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates said he has contracted COVID. Um, Gates said he was experiencing mild symptoms of the infection. Quote, I've tested positive for COVID. I'm experiencing mild symptoms and following the expert's advice by isolating until I am healthy again. Unquote. Gates said on Twitter. In national news, the U.S. House of Representatives passed a supplemental funding bill for Ukraine that provides the country with nearly $40 billion in assistance amid Russia's special military operation or war, including more than $20 billion in defense aid. The bill passed 366 to 55 as voting continued. The measure is expected to be cleared by the U.S. Senate once it's taken up by congressional lawmakers for a vote. And if I'm not mistaken, that 50 had to do with Republicans. Um... Look, I will give Democrats one bit of advice. If Republicans hit upon an American first argument and start to argue that Democrats hear more about Ukraine than they do inflation and child care and food, the hypocrisy of it would matter. It would be completely correct. And I strongly suspect, I'm changing my opinion on this, that the economy is going to matter far more than what is taking place on the issue of abortion. But I could be wrong. We'll see. The high-powered Hollywood attorney providing... Oh, the sugar bro. Right. The high-powered Hollywood attorney providing financial and strategic advice to Hunter Biden currently in the crosshairs of a a federal investigation into his taxes and purported shady overseas business dealings is viewed by some in the United States of basically president's allies as a potential liability, according to The New York Times. They're reportedly uneasy over the fact that Kevin Morris, best known for brokering the $550 million licensing deal for co-creator of animated series South Park, has taken on the role of close confidant of Joe Biden's eldest son. They also are concerned that the president, or that for the president's son to be receiving financial assistance from a wealthy benefactor, that it could reflect poorly on the president of the United States, according to insiders cited by publication. Why would it look bad (laughs) that the crackhead son of the president is getting basically tax bill paid for and currently living situation um, being covered. Why would that be an issue at all? Nothing to see here, folks. There's no, you know, influence brokering associ- uh, taking place. Totally coincident. In international news, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said that he regrets that the UN has missed an opportunity to reach a political solution on the Ukraine crisis. The top Russian diplomat made his statements during a joint press conference with his Omani counterpart, Saeed Badar al-Busadi in Muscat. Quote, take into account the interest shown by the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. We advised him, first of all, to turn his appeals to Kiev authorities to demand that they stop preventing civilians from leaving the areas of military operation. Unquote, Lavrov said. The U.S. Navy sent the USS Port Royal a Ticondra, oh, right, a ton. Tangarosa, I think I'm pronouncing that right, or Ticonderosa class guided missile destroyer or missile cruiser of the 7th Fleet to pass through the body of water separating Taiwan from mainland China. The ship remained in international waters while navigating the corridor on Tuesday in a mission meant to demonstrate American, quote, commitment to a free and open Indo-Pacific, unquote, according to the statement. Ticonderosa class, Ticonderosa, that's it. A group of researchers at the University of Bath conducted a study in which they found that taking a week-long break from social media improves a person's well-being, as well as reduces depression and anxiety. 
The authors of the study also suggest that taking a mental break from social media may be recommended as a way to help people manage their mental health in the future. Wow. You know how bad things are where they're like, this is damaging your mental health. A recent study in World uh, Meteorological Organization has indicated that there is a 93% chance that at least one year in the next five years will exceed 2016 as the warmest year on record, as well as the 93% chance that in the next five years, they will be warmer than the last five. $40 billion to Ukraine. In business news, consumer prices in Denmark have jumped to the highest level in 38 years, according to figures from Statistics Denmark showed on Tuesday. According to the agency, the Danish Consumer Price Index, the CPI, jumped from 5.4% in March to 6.7% in April. Prices have soared amid the rising global energy costs against the backdrop of the Russian-Ukraine conflict. The key inflation drivers in Denmark were energy, natural gas, food, and of course, tobacco. This is basically what the agency said. There's another report on this, on something that's also bubbling up in... Okay, can't find it. I'll have to come back to it. But let's keep going. This day in history, in 330 BC, I'm assuming, or AD, I'm assuming, Con- yeah, AD, Constantinople um, becomes the capital of the Roman Empire. In 868, the earliest surviving dated printed book is produced in China. In 1981, yada yada, a lot, like we mentioned earlier this morning, the musical Cats is premiered. In 1985, 56 football fans die in a stadium fire that is grisly. In 1996, Value Jet Flight 592 crashes into the Florida Everglades shortly after takeoff. In 1998, India executed a series of nuclear weapons tests. In 2000, India's population officially reaches 1 billion. Uh, I think this is a star aurora named India's billionth baby. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chance. So there was another story that I was looking for that also pertain to Europe and how bad um, the countries were basically being hit in Europe for it. And if I'm not mistaken, it was like Greece was like the 10th country. Right here. Here we are. So ninth EU country sees inflation jump to double digits. Greece has recorded its highest prices in 28 years. With inflation surpassing 10%, Greece became the ninth country in the Eurozone in which the official inflation has reached double digits, following Bulgaria at 10.5%, Slovakia 10.9%, the Netherlands 11.2%, Czech Republic 11.9%, Poland 12.3%, Latvia 13.2%, Lithuania 16.6%, and Estonia 19%. Yes, that is grisly. That is grisly. And again, when you listen to some of these countries, like Poland, look, energy costs in those countries are insanely expensive. And this is before the war. I know in Czech Republic, I know in Poland, I've been to both of those places and had to end up paying um, the person who owned the property that we were staying at money because we were turning the heat up higher than they wanted and the price went through the roof. Like, it is insane. I mean, keep in mind, they were trying to get Nord Stream 2 for a reason. It wasn't perfunctory. It wasn't just, oh, we just love Russians so much that we just want, it wasn't that. It was, we have energy requirements. Those energy requirements are being met. We need to decrease the amount of money that we're paying for it. And the way to do that is increase supply. Well, what about now? Does that go away? Does that impetus go away? Of course it doesn't go away. It's just, they're eating themselves alive over this. It's just astonishing to watch. This is a European, this is supposed to be an economic cartel. 
give or take, not a cartel, an economic union. Meaning right. what they're doing is supposed to be in the best interest of the economic well-beings of the countries that are part of that union. Well, and that's precisely the reason I brought up BRICS to mm-hmm. Mark Sloboda the last hour was because when all the big wigs from the BRICS nations go to China next month, presumably Vladimir Putin will also attend, uh, despite the rumors, you know, that, oh, he's sick, he's dying, he has cancer. He, I, I don't know. As he doesn't far, listen to his generals. He's just there by himself, et cetera. Uh, or, it's just lunacy. Or stuff. did you hear the one with his, the, he was wearing the blanket over his legs during the, uh, during the, the Victory Day parades? And they said, they said, oh, he has polio. Like, <laughs> really, people? Whoa. Yeah, as far as Whoa. China can tell from the reports I've seen, they're expecting Vladimir Putin there next month. It seems like the RSVP is there. Yeah. They're trying to hammer out the exact day. But going back to the whole economic cartel thing, I mean, that's essentially what BRICS is as well. But right now, I feel like it is a time in just in the whole world. It's not even just in the West or it's the Southern Hemisphere. It's, it's not that anymore. It's, it's the world yeah. that our economics are inextricably tied to politics. Yes, it is. And because look what, look what the EU is doing to Russia. Or even the way the U.S. has been using sanctions for like, oh, we don't like you getting those missile systems. What do you mean? We're a sovereign country. We can buy whatever systems right. we want. Sanction. Right. And you, you're going to sanction their banks. or yep. this. So the U.S. started moving, plotting down this path of a, a very dangerous conflation, not dissimilar from Star Trek and Star Wars. Dangerous conflation. But, you know, tying economic warfare with political strife causes the whole world pain. Yes. The whole world. And it may be unintended consequences. Some people would argue that it is the point. Right. That it's the whole point of this. Um, But at the end of it, the point of what? Like, are you supposed to be hurting the American people and these these American babies who can't get formula. I think they're sociopaths. Because they're going to rise up. The babies are going to rise up on Capitol Hill and say, enough. Yeah, we need food. Like, what's what do they think is supposed to happen here other than causing literal physical pain, if not by way of dropping bombs, but physical pain because families cannot put food on the table? Well, think of it this way. The people who are making decisions are insulated from the decisions that they're making. So Jin Saki got paid for values, but Jin Saki is going to be on MSNBC making millions of dollars oh, yeah. on a show that is going to be horrendous to watch. We're going to have a whole hour every day, I understand, <clears throat> of Jen telling us what we should do. I, I don't know what I would have done with my life um, without having Jin Saki. All hail, all hail Jen. Yeah, all hail Jen. Um, but, but yeah, at the point where these guys are isolated from the choices and decisions that these guys are making, then it doesn't, doesn't really hurt Biden to make this choice. Maybe politically because he's failing miserably, but does it hurt him economically? Or for that matter, Saki. Well, not or them. any of these people. Yeah, not them. It's They're us. Not the elites. It's the regular people like us who are paying for their values, right. which is the point. Like I mean, it just it it. I was looking at the gas pump yesterday. I, I oh, it's obscene. Oh gosh, I I thankfully I don't drive that much to begin with, but I was looking around at people pulling up in their different cars, and I saw people with the small, you know, like a Toyota Camry, costing them over a hundred dollars. To fill up a Toyota Camry. It took me 80. I've never paid 80 bucks to fill up a car. And I used to have an SUV even before I got my other car. Like this, yeah. It's obscene. Like, I just can't understand how the people on Capitol Hill can sit there and let this 
happen when they're duly elected by us to support and represent our best interest. But do you think they've been representing our interests even before this took place? No, of course not. But it's gotten increasingly worse. Yeah. And I think when you know, I think it's made it abundantly clear that they have access to this money because this in the lower chamber, Congress just sailed through and was like, here, like all of us are saying, yes, here's all the money to Ukraine. But where, why not $40 billion to subsidize some sort of food yes. or gas thing for the American people? Housing. I mean, something. Subsidize something yeah. for the people that need it. Mm-hmm. But instead, the needs of, you know, the war machine in Ukraine are a higher priority. The needs of the many are worth more than the needs of the few. Um, but not anymore. Not anymore. Not anymore. So, absolutely right. Let's do this. Let's go into a break. We have Tyler Nixon with us. He is Roger Stone's attorney. What is it? Um, defense. Um, extremist and defensive liberty. Love that line. Love that line. Um, so, yeah, let's take a break. We'll be back in a moment. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. Also, smash and slam that rumble button with the greatest force that you can muster. Don't destroy your computer, but definitely hit it hard. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. There's been an interesting report that has been coming out, and I guess there's two main stories. One is this kind of fight between Steve Schmidt, which was... John McCain's former campaign chair, or this basically a person who's running his campaign, and Megan McCain, the same John McCain's daughter. And Steve Schmidt has been losing his mind, being extremely belligerent, going after Megan McCain. So there's that story. There's also this other story that is entirely fascinating, with Steele Dossier's key source being shocked, being shocked that there was a lot of fake news and rumors and just things that were basically just made up in the Steele dossier, the same Steele dossier that Jenkowitz, the Ministry of Truth czar, Scary Poppins, still backs up today. Amazing. Let's go to our guests. We're joined with the one and only Tyler Nixon, Army Infantry veteran, counselor at law, constitutionalist, advocate, writer, technologist, critical historian, and extremist in defense of liberty. Tyler, what's going on, my man? How you doing this morning? Good morning. Good morning, kiddos. It's, uh, it's a good day, I guess, for to be alive. But I have to agree with you that um, when was the last time we really were represented as you know the people were represented by what we have in Washington? Let's step into that. Let's let's start there. Go ahead. Give me go your take there. on go that. There. Yeah, go there. I mean, because we were making this point of forty billion versus all of the issues. Meaning, whether you're on the right or left, whether you believe in this or that, it is still problematic to have that much money done on a whim. Whereas you have all of these other issues that avail this particular country that we just and don't then, confront. And they squabble when yeah. it becomes m- like the $40 billion for our own people. They mm-hmm. squabble over it. But when it becomes $40 billion in X, ex- I mean, that's like 
seven that seven billion in excess of what Biden asked for. Yeah. They're like, no, I know Biden asked for thirty three. Let's just bump it up to forty, guys. Let's give it to Ukraine. No squabbles there. Not a problem. And let's not forget that the Fed is raising interest rates at, at a clip that hasn't been seen in probably since uh, Paul Volcker. And you know that just that just compounds the debt that these uh, just spendthrift profligate. Uh, I don't know. It's almost like you'd almost think they're trying to collapse this country. They're trying to collapse our economy. They're really just I mean, because how could they sit? I mean, they can't be that insulated. I mean, I know Biden's out to lunch. Uh, you know, he, I don't think he's had a coherent thought probably since he was vice president. And he I, he's just detached from it. And these people, they do live in this truly in this bubble that's just insulated from the the uh, consequences and the effects of their policies, which are compounding at such a rate, it's just impossible for me to think that either they're just totally consumed with arrogant megalomania and just believe that, you know, they can lie and uh, gaslight the country into actually conforming to their reality, like Biden's uh, blaming inflation on first the COVID uh, so-called pandemic and then on Putin. I mean, give me a break. This guy is a just, I mean, it, it even as a puppet, he's just you know mouthing whatever they they put in front of him. Uh, he's just so disingenuous and just uh, completely, almost bloodless reptilian. And and you know he used to be. I think he had the spark of seeking power, um, and he had this you know fire in the belly. I guess you would call it. You know all all to to get the top job. Always to be in the room with the you know the decision makers, being one of the top dogs, and the, the, you know this that and the other. Just total egomania, total self serving narcissism. Um, but he he sort of had some level of uh, I don't know I want to say humanity to him, but there was like a spark there. Now it's just like he's just like this dead, lifeless uh, husk of a former whatever he was before, uh, almost soulless, and just is like mouthing the words when he's not bewildered and sort of stumbling from uh, embarrassment to embarrassment. And People like Saki, I mean, just the, you know, you almost hate to say people are soulless, but some of these people are just, I mean, they really, the fact of what's going on and that they're just sort of sitting back and in no way taking any responsibility for it, not addressing any of it, and frankly, doubling down on their worst policies is just, I mean, I hope America is really getting a, a good, uh, you know, snoo a snootful, let's just say, of what these people are really about, and what they've always been about, but now the mask is off as they, as they, uh, you know, it's it's like we're approaching this sort of um, critical moment, I think, where it's either the end is nigh and it's either going to be the end of, is nigh for our country or it's going to be the end is nigh for this corrupt uh, perpetual political class that, you know, is the best government the lobbyists can buy. I mean, they haven't they haven't had a regular budget in probably maybe 15 or 20 years has been continuing resolutions. There's no attempt to have any discipline, even in their profligacy of the massive amounts they spend. They just dash off 40 billion here, 100 billion there. I mean, the last time we had any type of uh, fiscal, uh, even anything close uh, uh, to discipline was under Newt Gingrich. I mean, he, he and Bill Clinton tried to take credit for that. I was just going to, I was going to bring that up. Like for all his faults, didn't he leave office in a surplus? Thanks to the House Republicans. I mean, they were on a, they were on a the typical deficit exploding jag uh, from 93 to 94. Um, you know, with Tom Foley's speaker, Clinton as president, and and 
people had enough of it. And on top of the things they were piling on, like the uh, you know the gun control measures, which were a big deal. And Newt came in and said, we are going to balance the budget. We are going to get fiscal. We're going to get a balanced budget amendment, which unfortunately never made it through. That was uh, one of the top contract with America, um, as well as term limits, which would have been nice for Congress. Um, but, you know, they Newt and the Republicans balanced the budget and Bill Clinton tried to take credit for it and give me a break. He had it forced on him almost as badly as Obama was, uh, you know, uh, shellacked, as he liked to call it, in 2010. And let's face it. I mean, I'm sorry. I, objectively, the Democrat Party has completely there's no one reasonable or rational or, uh, you know, in my view, that's not in some le- on some level corrupt and bought into this entire sort of propaganda machine that they, you know, because the media, and I believe the media is just as much part of it. They've been co-opted. You know, there used to be accountability just from the the fact of the media's presence that any scandal that was, uh, you know, past a certain level of corruption, you could forget it. You were out of Washington, you wouldn't be accepted. Hold hold that thought. Now it's just like, forget it. They promote the, they promote the degeneracy. Hold that thought, Tyler. You are on to something right there because we just saw last week was Jen Psaki's last official uh, White House press briefing because she's stepping down. This is the interim week. We know who um, is taking her place, Corinne uh, Jean-Pierre. But Jen is getting ready to launch her own show, I believe on MSNBC. It's going to be a daily one-hour show, okay? This is not going to be the first time that we've seen a White House press secretary get their own show. Um, how The quality of that show, how good the presentation is, that'll be up for discussion. But my point here is that we are seeing nowadays, this wasn't the case 30 years ago, that we're seeing a revolving door between officials in Washington and the faces that appear on TV with their own show. Jen Psaki is one of them. Uh, Dana Perino is on Fox. Simone Sanders. Simone Sanders. Shows flopping. Well, the original, the original himself, George Stephanopoulos. George, I mean, he could yes. walk right out of the Clinton White House right. and onto you know, ABC, whatever it is, Sunday morning. It's been a thing in the last 20, 30 years, it seems like. And and they've totally co-opted what, what used to be. I mean, during the Bush era, I watched MSNBC and because they were critical of Bush and the war, yes. that's what I watched. I you know, did too. Olbermann, but I mean, this man's gone insane. I mean, I'm sorry. It's so over the top. It's so ridiculous. Um, and, you know, I think behind it all, you know, frankly, is, 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 uh, Barack Obama. I mean, it's the Clintons brought their, you know, they brought the sleaze to town. They brought this sort of uh, this notion that you can lie to everyone's face and that everyone has to accept it because you're never going to come off it and you're going to use every means at your disposal, no matter how corrupt, to evade accountability, to evade uh, criminal prosecution. And frankly, then they've upped the ante into turning that into pro- persecuting and prosecuting your opponents. Um, this is the, This is the Clinton ethics. And I think Obama came in and frankly, he cleaved the country on on issues of race beyond far beyond what it needed to be, uh, and tried to force things on the country that that were the country was not neither ready for it nor willing to have, and you know spawned a massive counter reaction. Um, and I, I think he's done damage to the last generations. And frankly, he's the he's the scriptwriter behind Joe Biden. You know, frankly, you if you want to talk about who's writing up, uh, you know, who's putting this stuff in front of Biden. It's basically these these uh, hardcore um, and you know they're not liberals they're they're so-called progressives they're leftists 
Uh, you know, Jamar, I don't know where you stand. Yeah, these but, guys I mean, I consider you more. Guys a, yeah. I consider you a liberal, not a progressive. You know, progressive is an adjective. I mean, you could be a progressive fascist, and that's really what they are. I mean, you know, it's it's a joke. It's a hollow term. I mean, what does that tell you about somebody? It's like saying libertarian is um, a hollow term. That it, it doesn't mean anything. And for one thing, the balance. Well, there are a few things. I mean, you can do that with anything. That's what I mean. You can do that with anything where you subvert the meaning of a particular word. And more important, more to the point, because you said a lot there that needs to be unpacked. The balanced budget thing was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. The federal government is not a kitchen table at somebody's house. There are all sorts of things that go into having sovereign currency, and sometimes bridging deficits matter. On the other part, Obama didn't, never wanted to touch his race. I mean, like, he was, I mean, he ran under this model that you could be a president that just so happens to be black but you can't necessarily be a black president. And so when issues would come up that were specific to race, Obama would often punt, or he would take a subordinate role in those issues. For example, when that cop arrested the guy outside of his own house, what did Obama say? He had a beer summit. And this was against what many African-Americans want. It was against what many other Democrats the, wanted. The Princeton professor. Yeah. It's so like, let's have a beer yeah, summit yeah. in this moment. It's nonsense. I believe it was Gates. Yeah. Gates was his name. Absolutely. But I mean, oh, come on, come on. Like, let's, let's be, okay, Obama himself, first of all, that was when he was running for president. When he became president, everything was, uh, you know, subtle, subtle, including Michelle, these subtle comments, as though anything, anybody who opposed Obama or the opposition to his radical, uh, you know, statist agenda was somehow racism. I mean, everything became racism after, uh, you know, through that. And it didn't have to be Obama himself. It was all these people beneath him who right were there. just, you know, sort of racialist right. opportunists. Was, that's the point that I'm making. It's not, a, it wasn't Obama, which is my main point. And by the way, Democrats do that as a basis of operation at this point. What did they say about Bernie Sanders? Bernie Sanders was um, sexist because he had the temerity to run against Hillary Clinton. Like they do this all the time. I mean, this is not, it's, it's. Of course. No, I agree. And, and, but it's always Democrats, isn't it? It is Democrats that have a tendency to do that, even though Republicans have their own culture war issues that they also go into. Oh, I mean, come on. Nobody's, nobody's saying, oh, you're a, you're a this or that because you oppose the, the Republicans. I mean, like. It, no, look, I'm sorry. Objectively, the Democratic Party is, has become far more corrupt. You don't hear anybody on that side ever t- talking about civil liberties, talking about, I mean, they're, they're pushing the censorship. They're, they're all on board with Biden's, uh, you know, th- this insane totalitarian agenda that, that they're trying you. to push. Yes. That and, I you know, you. I mean, you, did you hear Rand Paul confront Mayorkas? I mean, yes. that was beautiful. We have that clip. I mean, like, I'm like, and, and, and people are like, oh, well, gee, Rand Paul, he spoke the truth. It was a gaffe. That's not, that wasn't a gaffe. He's been saying that for 20 years. And He's so been, was his father for 40 before right. that. Extremely consistent. And, you know, but, and I would say that, I mean, I think like, look, they're, they're, believe me, I have my issues with plenty of Republicans. I fought them tooth and nail back in the, Delaware back in the day because they were just it was just this sort of country club corporate you know ladder climbing you know soulless uh, brainless at half the time uh, sort of um, party that I'm like what do you people do you even stand for anything I mean you don't have you know I just I didn't understand what it was about uh, it was about just people having feathering their own nests having these little power uh, fiefdoms but um, you know for the most part though at least though with there are people, I mean, there is a, a portion of the Republican Party at this point, and I hope it's rising, that are taking this stuff seriously, civil liberties that are taking the massive growth and governmental power and these, these unprecedented uh, intrusions that are being uh, uh, propagated by Biden and his ilk. Uh, they're taking them seriously, and they're, they're doing their best, I mean, to push back on it. I think, uh, unfortunately, under Trump, I mean, you had a Paul Ryan, he, the man was undermined to, to such an extent, it's amazing it's amazing that he was maintained the popularity that he did, considering the onslaught against him that's unheard of. Meanwhile, Joe Biden just runs around 
uh, like I don't know, like little him. Big Lord Fauntleroy or something, uh, you know, with 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 uh, dementia, and they can't they can't just sort of like give him enough free passes. I mean, I think slowly they're coming around because they realize the destruction is the swath of destruction is so extensive. But I mean, honestly, it's uh, it, yeah, it's just disturbing because getting back to the sort of point you, I was Tyler. making, yeah. the lack of media pressure that 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 overhang that like if you get involved in any serious corruption. They will uncover it no matter what party you are. You will be exposed and you will be driven out of Washington or out of power. That is gone. And in fact, they abet the power, that, that, that sort of corruption now. I mean, they cover yes. it up. I mean, yes. And, and it's sad because that we see the agree. result of it. It's, it's now an overdrive. Well, f- furthermore, furthermore, bringing up Mayorkas and, and DHS with Scary Poppins going in to becoming, <laughs> you know, this unelected official, this political appointee to God tell us, truth. to tell yeah. us, you know, what, what is true and what is not. Uh, I'm sure she's going to applaud Jen Psaki on her show and say, everything Jen says is perfect and Jen <laughs> has it right. And But now, leading straight into this is with fake news, the Steele dossier, there's still more stuff coming to light about all of this. And it's that these people that are tied to the Clintons, even they were surprised. Chuck Dolan. Chuck Dolan was surprised that, you know, three people chatting gossiping three, you know, former college friends chatting about gossip. Let's, I don't want to get into the dirty details of Oh, what, you mean the hotel room scene? Oh, I'll get into the oh, hotel room scene. Jamara wants to do that. Yeah. Yeah, basically. hyperbole. They were like laughing it up, like making, you know, sort of almost on a jag, one of those where you just start making up insane stuff right. and laughing about it. <laughs> right. And, and these people are overhearing it and like taking notes and and turning it into a dossier. I mean, it's insane. It really is. And shows you the core of just, I mean, uh, the core of deceit that people could take it as far as to getting FISA warrants to yes. spy on a presidential Tyler, campaign. That's the whole so, point you know, here. What, the, what these people are, they're, they're, they're fascists. I mean, that's just, you know, there's no better word for it. I mean, left, right, whatever. What does that mean? These, these voices are getting amplified. Yeah. Like the, this, the, the actual fake news is getting amplified while the exposing of this fake news is being tamped down by people that are supposed to be the purveyors of truth. Like, how do, what kind of upside down world is this? That's what I want to know. I just, I don't understand what's happening where that somehow became the truth. And not because I'm some Trump MAGA supporter, but I mean, reality, there's objective reality. And the objective reality was that Trump, this dossier attached to Trump was bunk. Yeah. It and was total think, bunk. They went through three years of this. And now all of a sudden, yeah, four years. Thank you. And by the way, you still have some Democrats today that still would bring this stuff up, the shifts of the world. I mean, oh, yeah. As if within all of the money that they spent on the investigation, that they couldn't talk to um, Danchenko or they couldn't talk to, what is it, Charles, what is his last name? Dolan, Dolan. I believe. Chuck Dolan. Um, Chuck Dolan Jr. Like, it wasn't like these people were on the lam. They weren't running and just in hiding. So you took three or four years of an investigation only to come to this kind of conclusion that, oh, yeah, they just made this stuff up. Like Chuck Dolan, who is a a political ally of Hillary Clinton, specifically sent an email to her saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like this is you know that this is is like conjecture, right? Like people just talking and and talking ish. right? Like this is just friends talking ish. And they're like, no, it's fine. We're going to run with it. Put it in a dossier. Well, I mean, you know, here's the thing, though. Look, it's one thing to gossip and have it be turned into 
political fodder in, in a campaign. It's another when the FBI gets involved. And even as far as, I mean, this is how corrupt the prosecutors were, you know, the handpicked uh, prosecutors such as Aaron Zelensky and these others uh, who pursued Roger Stone. They pursued uh, uh, George uh, Pap- Papadopoulos, was it? Um, and and I'll tell you one thing in his case, for as an example of just the the, the disgusting like uh, corruption of these prosecutors, they in their sentencing memorandum said, now now because okay, so the the FBI had asked Papadopoulos uh, about this guy Mifsud, right, who apparently is one of the uh, progenitors of this whole saga, and he was still in the country at that point, and and Papadopoulos said he's here, he's you know you can get him. And the FBI didn't, never did anything about it in the memorandum uh, of sentencing that was, you know, was pretty much almost like a sworn document presented to the judge after he was convicted. Uh, Papadopoulos of, you know, negligible. I mean, honestly, it's ridiculous. He was prosecuted. But uh, they, they said specifically, this is Aaron Zelensky, that he uh, with, uh, withheld or, or sort of concealed the fact of Mifsud being in the country when it was the exact opposite. And the 302s showed it, too. As well, and I mean, this is just—I mean—lie directly and attempting to get more prison time for him on that basis that he didn't cooperate when he did. I mean, this is just—and they said, you know—they did the same thing in Roger Stone. They lied in his sentencing memorandum as well, uh, in number in a number of ways. And I mean, it's like when you are talking about people enforcing the law who are committing crimes. As far as I'm concerned, there is no almost no worse criminal than a prosecutor who is corrupt because they're denying you justice or even the possibility of justice. And we saw this corruption ooze out of this whole giant uh, you know, get Trump at any cost um, and take power and seize power at any cost uh, mindset in, in people like Adam Schiff and just the entire, frankly, Democratic national uh, leadership, if you want to call it, you know, use that term loosely. Uh, it's more like a crime syndicate than a leadership. Uh. Tyler, it's awful. These these guys have I mean, these these prosecutors are sitting on exculpatory evidence that they know they know bust their case and they're, they they ostensibly hide yeah. this exculpatory evidence that would disprove their case, but they they push and pursue anyway. Like this poor Danchenko, the Igor Danchenko guy. I mean, he got busted for, quote, lying to the feds when, I mean, a lie could be something as like, you said this happened June 3rd and then the next time you're like, yeah, I think it was like June 4th. I was like, we got you. Ah, you said it was You lied to the feds, time. you're going to prison. Yeah, they used that. Yeah. Like 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 literally if you look at Roger Stone was prosecuted for for like tertiary uh, level um, statements about his communications with like Randy Credico, a comedian. And, and it was so like irrelevant and ridiculous that they were even asking these questions. But it was like they had set him up. They had likely been handed, uh, you know, probably transcripts of his conversations. I mean, since they had him wiretapped, it was clear. I mean, that came out right after the inauguration that they, that he was one of the people who were was named, uh, you know, for surveillance um, and and just destroyed the man's life, dragged him through this process. And then the judge in the case, I mean, it even went into the judiciary where they, where they had him gagged. I mean, be, they had him gagged after he was convicted. How the hell do you influence? The whole point of that is to, quote, protect the jury pool from in undue influence. If he's already been convicted and we already knew the jury pool was tainted, the, the, the damn jury forewoman lied about her uh, her anti-Trump and frankly anti-Stone media posts. She deleted that and she was an attorney, yet she may, stayed as the jury forewoman. To the end, the judge wouldn't do anything about it. And they still kept Roger under gag after he was convicted. I mean, that shows you the malice and the corruption there. 
where this man's First Amendment rights to defend himself publicly were completely abrogated by this judge by uh, sort of arbitrary order that lasted even past the dismissal of the jury that was supposed to be protecting from being influenced or under the jury pool from being unduly influenced. This goes right there, Tyler. The, the, when, when poor Roger was busted, I mean, what are the chances that CNN happened to be there? Not just that. The fact that they had a raid on his house. Right. This- but it was like a made-for-TV thing. And this is the collusion. That, that This goes back to the criticism of the media that we've been talking about the last 15 minutes. Is that it's it's yeah. literally, they used to be the fourth estate, and you're supposed to be there to shine light on the darkness that is Washington, yes. D.C. That is not the case anymore. Now they're running cover. They're running cover for what's happening on Capitol Hill. Indeed. And they're sowing the seeds of their own, uh, if not destruction, certainly their own uh, implosion or their own, uh, you know, whatever, becoming anachronism. Because look at all the alternate media rising. I mean, Fault Lines is an example. I mean, look at look at all of the new outlets that, that of people who are, whether they're just citizen uh, jur- investigators and journalists, uh, you know, that really are doing the true work that would be protected by the First Amendment and that we consider the media to be, exist for, to hold uh, power to accountability. Um, I mean, I, let's face it, I think if you didn't believe in Operation uh, uh, Mockingbird, which was the CIA infiltration of you know major corporate media, well major media you know back when it was more consolidated into a few outlets. Um, if you don't believe that, I mean certainly this uh, corporate media has been co-opted and absorbed into uh, the Democrat uh, national you know syndicate enterprise, whatever you want to call it. I mean it really there's nowhere you can go uh, other than Fox News, obviously. Um, you know, just as an alternative, and they and they sort of play the establishment game as well. They're they're not exactly, I mean, credible. I mean, they have opinion journalism, and at least they state it as such. And they don't pretend that they're, uh, you know, that they're they're the be all end all. That they're the arbiters of truth, as we get with these other uh, <laughs> outlets, which are worse. And and I mean, just CNN and MSNBC to, to take this approach as though they're sitting there like uh, reporting objective truth. And it's like, well, we're just, you know, we're just, you know, they, they don't ever admit their biases. Yeah, the framing. And at least be- I think in the other outlets, people say up front, listen, you know, I'm, I'm right leaning or whatever. I'm conservative. You know, on the other ones, they don't, they'll never say that. They'll never say I'm a Democrat. You know, I'm a, you never hear it. And it's because they want to maintain this veneer, this facade that they're somehow neutral. They're objective. Agreed. They're trying Agreed. to, you know, yeah. live it's- off, live off the legacy of the Walter Cronkite era when, you know, some of these guys were, were genuine, Mike Wallace, genuine compared to Chris Wallace, that's a perfect example of the shift. You know, when you had a Mike Wallace who was just like, he would go after anybody if they were corrupt and, you know, set his sights on them. Chris Wallace was at such a, oh my God, you want to talk about an obsequious suck up. Watch the interview of him, him and Nancy Reagan and Ronald Reagan about circa 1985 or six. Mm-hmm. He it couldn't kiss her ass enough on camera. It was like, oh my God, Chris, wipe your lips there, buddy. It was really grotesque. I mean, honestly, if you want to see what, like how horrible, horribly, uh, just, you know, what a suck up ladder climber this guy was. Yeah. And I just think he, I just think karma really got him with that CNN, CNN plus. plus. Yeah. Explosion. I mean, <laughs> right. it's like, where are you going to go now, Chrissy? Huh? Yeah. Daddy's it, gone. Yeah. Daddy's yeah. Daddy's gone. gone. So, so what are you going to do? It, it's, what are you it, do? it is wild. That framing is aggravating, right? It, like it's so narcissistic and it's this kind of self-congratulatory, far greater um, imp- impression and opinion of themselves that is warranted. I mean, it's amazing that they frame it that way. I mean, the lie 
is in the framing in and of itself. Um, I want to go to something what else. What you guys do is so much more. Uh, I just want to compliment you on your ability to report on facts as you see them come across, but also to share your opinions and to, there's a line of distinction there. You're not, you're not, there's no narrative. There's no ulterior agenda you're pushing. Your, your cards are on the table. And this is why, you know, I'd rather watch you on national, you know, broadcast meaning like, you know, the whatever than any, than all of them put together. I mean, it would they're, never they're just have me sickening. Because for me, I, my thing is what's true. Like I have this kind of comic book point right. of view of. We won't play ball. Yeah, is, it's is that the, part. Problem, just, I mean, because you know, like a Tulsi Gabbard, mostly would not play ball. Yeah, because so never is, get on the national it, stage. It's like a doctor's do no harm. There's this philosophical need, ethical need to just what is reality? You're sitting on the moon, looking at events. What does it look like? And somewhere along the way, that is no longer the case. Um, but Tyler, I want to go into the the story with. Megan McCain and Steve Schmidt. Oh, I got to be honest. One. I was enamored by this. I was reading through this and I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe these people are going at it like this. We were in the meeting room yesterday talking about it. I, I had see, I saw Megan McCain's name trending, but I didn't necessarily know why. And oh my God, going into it. So Megan McCain apparently wrote a book and what? It sold 244 copies since it was released in April. And Schmidt, Reacted to the news, and I just read it, by remembering the time he kicked Megan McCain off a plane during the 2008 McCain campaign due to her, quote, outrageous behavior. And so Schmitz comes out, he says, I can explain this when I kicked Megan McCain off the 2008 McCain plane because of her outrageous behavior. I talked to her mom and explained what was happening and why. Sydney got weepy and said, I just want to say I raised two good sons and everybody knows you did. Now think about that. Meaning, I told your mama why I kicked you off the plane. And my mom, and your mom said, I raised two good sons. The implication is I screwed up with the daughter. This is what Steve Schmidt is saying um, online. He says, Megan McCain has been trying to have a conversation with me for almost 14 years. He wrote Saturday. Once again, today, she called me a pedophile. It is slander. It is disgusting. It is untrue. And it says everything about her. Here, she is liking a tweet of a far-right liar and a piece of filth. Yeah, he is unhinged in these tweets. I mean, go wait, for wait. it. Before, I mean, for people that are not following uh, this sort of inside baseball gossip. Yeah, yeah. So Megan McCain, we all know, is the daughter of the late John McCain. And Steve Schmidt was his longtime uh, campaign manager, his, like his, his political confidant for many, many, many years. So now, yeah, there's this, I mean, I, uh, now there's this fighting uh, now that Papa, Papa's gone. So now the kids are all fighting. That's where we're at today. What are you going to say, Tyler? Well, you know, I, what do you say when a den of criminals start attacking each other? I mean, I, I don't know what, who to cheer for more, frankly. I mean, as, as frankly, supercilious and nonsensical and ridiculous uh, that she would ever be on a national stage for anything as Meghan McCain is. Uh, and and useless as far as I mean, I don't, it's like what what do you represent? It's like her father. I mean, he was a Democrat. He was just you know he he basically just sort of parked himself in the GOP, probably because a Democrat couldn't even get elected in Arizona, so he just had to stick with the GOP. But I mean, the man was a the man was a warmongering fascist lunatic. I'm sorry, I you know and I and he changed he changed badly. I supported him in 2000 only because he was the only alternative to George W. Bush. But after that, he just I mean he became so bellicose. And such a, a warmonger. It was just, it was really grotesque. And frankly, it is spawn. Lindsey Graham still haunts the Senate with that same attitude of, you know, it's all right. Let's just, a nuclear war, let's consider it. You know, it, I mean, these people are totally insane. And, and I'll tell you this, Steve Schmidt, you know, reflects 
frankly, that that uh, I mean, you want to talk about an odious, repugnant, uh, <laughs> half-assed townie. Frankly, from the he went to the University of Delaware. He's got that New Jersey mid-Atlantic accent. He sounds like you know, it's like a. Let me tell you something, Senator McCain. It's like it's like, dude. You know, you just honestly, he's he sickens me. And frankly, he and the bunch who started, first of all, stealing the name Lincoln for their Lincoln project. I mean, this is disgusting. These people were grifters from the beginning. They saw the opportunity in the anti-Trump movement to enrich themselves because they were all deep in debt. You know, Steve Schmidt was was barely selected to be campaign manager as McCain's campaign was dying in 2008. Um, and, you know, he sort of like maintained a relationship with McCain, but it was there was no close long time anything, really. I mean, McCain didn't even speak to him, as I understand, for years. Uh, they were excluded from the funeral, which was another, you know, of course, I'm sure that's bitterness and sour grapes. But, you know, honestly, he belongs with his uh, Steve Schmidt belongs with his natural ideological um, uh, sort of cohorts or fellow travelers in the fascist national media, uh, you know, grifters, whatever, li- paid liar, uh, you know, in fabricator of anything. I mean, the stuff the Lincoln Project came out with was just it was despicable. I mean, it was so it was piling onto the Russian collusion nonsense, anything they could grab. And they grabbed themselves a bunch of money until I guess one of them is, is was uh, soliciting. What was it? A th- underage, like way underage uh Someone, I, yeah. I don't know, whatever it was. I forget. That's even, where Megan McCain's comment is coming read in. read that sludge. But, you know, Mc, Megan McCain, yeah. though, I mean, she's not exactly a sympathetic figure. But, I mean, Schmidt just shows what it just, I mean, dude, have some class or some couth already. You know, he thinks it's cool. I mean, he's got some kind of audience, I guess, now on the, the sort of the radical, vicious, uh, uh, you know, Left Democrat, yeah, whatever. Democrats love him. And and love and, him. and they get they get off on these, you know, oh yeah, did you hear him stick it? To, and he's just it's like the race to the bottom to see how just how nasty and vile you can be. And they think this is like you know, winning brownie points with who? The nastiest, most vile of phonies. I mean, honestly, it, it's just you know, the fact that this is a national story, I mean, is it is a mystery to me because both of them are totally inconsequential. Uh, just blowhards and and self promoters who who have contributed nothing to the national conversation of any substance as, as long as I've ever heard them speak. I'm just waiting for Bill Crystal to weigh in and be like, "Now, kids." And- <laughs> right. uh, David right. from Bill Crystal. Who else? I mean, this whole cabal of people who claim to be Republicans but are are more frankly fascist than even the the, the Democrats now in their at their worst. Especially Lindsey Graham. And, uh, it's, you know, but but I, I but you know what? Good riddance. They've unmasked themselves. We don't have to pre- have this phony pretense like uh, you know David Brooks being a conservative or, or Jennifer Rubin. I mean, please, neoconservative, neocon artist, maybe, but nothing conservative. Certainly not Republican. I mean, this is and this is another uh, trope of the of the corporate media. Um, is is to basically create these sort of straw, well, real people turn them into straw men and say, this is a conservative. Listen to what they're saying. Give me a break. I mean, come on. And and, and those people tend to be the worst, uh, most bellicose and uh, vicious towards anything really truly conservative, like a Ron Paul. I mean, they they couldn't savage him badly enough and undeservedly so. I mean, he was had the most integrity, more integrity than all of them put together. Absolutely. Thousand percent agree about Rand Paul. And Schmidt. Ron Paul, I mean, too. Oh, Ron. Yeah, Ron, too. Ron, too. I mean, both. I mean, the way they shafted him in those elections where they act like he wasn't even running and he would be like number two in the field, almost as a prequel to Sanders. Yeah, totally agree with that. So so another part to this, 
is interesting too. Schmidt doesn't say this criticism for McCain. He also goes after John McCain, basically saying that he had an illegitimate kid or something. And then right here, he says, when Schmidt told, talking to McCain, Megan, um, that she was unimportant and that everything around her had nothing to do with her and that, quote, she was privileged and lucky and should be grateful, Megan said, right here, quote, she told me, and anyone else who would listen in response, do you know who the F my dad is? Schmidt recalled, it was the miserable anthem of total chaos that was the McCain campaign. It never stopped until one day I said, enough. And of course, he basically said McCain, an unaccomplished, spoiled disgrace to her family's legacy. Wow. I can't necessarily say he's wrong on that, right? Um, but it's a yeah, token yeah. from the McCain standpoint. I mean, but let's be clear. Look, 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 at, look at McCain's staffers. He and Nicole Wallace. I mean, you want yeah. to talk about a just a bloated talking head. Uh, also on MSNBC. Sort of propagandist. Host? I mean, Wallace is right. worse than Schmidt almost on MSNBC as well. Everybody worse, on MSNBC. Um, Joe Scarborough. I mean, we know Mika Brzezinski. We, yes. We know Mika Brzezinski's dad. is big new Brzezinski. I mean, all tied to Washington. Brother Ian seemed more, far more of a, a you know, stable, uh, reasonable guy. He was, I uh, worked with him when I was uh, on Senator Bill Ross' last campaign. He came in because he was on the uh, finance committee, I believe, Ian Brzezinski. But I never knew Mika, but my God, she is just awful. I mean, her statement, which they've dredged up, I'm sure you've heard it, about how we're, there's, she, she was expressing you know, fear that, that Donald Trump might gain control of the, quote, narrative. And she said, you know, he might get people, uh, people might, uh, he might have control over what people think when that's our job. I mean, okay. Did she say that? Yeah. She said that? She said that. Yeah. Oh God, you got to look it up tomorrow. It is I, just the I most brazen, outright. I don't know. And she was didn't it, even like stutter mic? or pause. It was like truly from within, like not even you oh. know, thinking, gee, maybe you shouldn't say that out loud, honey. Wow. It wasn't even a hot mic. It was like, here is what I think. Just bam. Wow. That's it. That's amazing. Look it up. I mean, yeah, she's going on. She's just, and she's rattles it off so casually. She's like, well, we can, you know, the, Donald Trump, you know, she might control what they think. I and mean, that's our job. And nobody even reacted. It's like, what? They're so bought into this notion that they're these elites that ride above everybody. And they're, they're honestly the most third rate, degenerate, as I said, soulless, um, really mindless. I mean, they really don't have anything but what the sort of group think is within the, uh, you know, I think journalist, this Ezra Klein thing, you know, they, they must have some, something like that because I mean, when you hear them repeat the same exact words, the same day across multiple channels, it's like, my God, you people are parrots of the worst sorts. And, uh, McCain though, you know, McCain, uh, only Steve Schmidt would have the, frankly, the, just the degenerate uncouth to, to to defame and and bash a dead man. Look, I had no use or, or love for John McCain, particularly you know the worst he got at the end of his life. But you know, let the man rest in peace. And please, you know, honestly, Schmidt, this is just nastiness and bile. It's it's not necessary. I mean, let let him let him rest. Whatever he 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 was. I think he McCain was wretched enough on the face of him without you adding to it. And who cares if he had whatever if he had affairs and so forth. I mean. You know, the, the family is a kind of a mess and uh, Megan McCain should, you know, they should have just people like that should just stay out of the public eye. But she I guess she has no other nothing to do with herself otherwise. And frankly, Schmidt's been riding those uh, short coattails for as long as he could. I mean, he could he could he could stand to shut up for a little while, just <laughs> sit on the millions he grifted from the uh, 
poorly named, awfully named uh, Lincoln Project. You know, I, I, my God, I mean, one of our greatest presidents. Guys, on, I, have I, his name attached to that mess. I miss the days of when these people were done with their cycle on Capitol Hill, that they would drift off into the private sector and, you know, go be on the board of like Pfizer or something. But now they're in our faces 24-7. They're getting their own TV shows. Yeah, they don't go anywhere. They Most stay in our face. No. No, it makes you wonder Schmidt. if we if we can depose this this ilk to some extent, like, where are we going to do with them? I mean, my God, it's like, they'll never stop until they're stopped. And, you know, what does that look like? Tell, you don't want to have to, like, throttle them in, in any way, but they're just out of control. Tell, and I they get, cannot. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I want to get your take on something that was released a few days ago. And this has to do with this kind of announcement that the feds did have information that the Saudis were implicated and responsible on some level. At the very least, they were involved in 9-11. And when the declassified memo comes out, it basically makes it right here. Omar al-Buyumi, a Saudi national, met with two 9-11 hijackers shortly after they arrived in the United States. He maintained that he met the hijackers by coincidence and was in the U.S. as a student. That is not true. The new document suggests that the 9-11 commission basically got it wrong. A FBI memo declassified in March reported that Bayumi was receiving a monthly stipend from Saudi intelligence. In other words, he was a spy. He wasn't this kind of student. It's, oh, and here's another one. Declassified FBI suggests that the initial meeting with the two hijackers has been arranged by contacts at the Saudi consulate in Los Angeles. Other documents released by the British government signal that Bayoumi knew about the attacks before those attacks took place. And to make it even worse, they're reporting that the diagram depicted a plane descending towards a target on the horizon. Besides, the diagram is a formula used to calculate the distance to the target. So basically, the U.S., for the longest time, it said or protected the Saudi um, government and all of this, despite the fact that the majority of the hijackers, the overwhelming majority, were Saudis. The U.S. invaded Iraq over 9-11, getting a million people killed when it seems that all along, at the very least, they knew on some level or had information that the Saudis were culpable. And so now that the relationship between Saudis and the U.S. has broken down, now, coincidentally, this comes out. And like I said, I believe in coincidences. I just don't trust them. And this is one of those I definitely don't trust. What is your take on this? I find this to be like just d d disastrous. I mean, like the notion. Uh, yeah, right, right. So we have about two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> My God, our FBI was tracking, frankly, uh, you know, uh, the, the 19 hijackers, uh, you know, and, and anybody who tried to, you know, send up, send up uh, uh, intel saying, hey, listen, these guys are taking, going to flight schools and saying, "Oh, we only want to learn to take off, not to land." And and they, you know, these these signals were being sent up the chain and were being blocked. Frankly, uh, you know, and Bandar Bush, I mean, like the only people who could, the only people who flew right after 9/11 in the country for something like what was it, a month, were the bin were the Bin Ladens. I mean, you want to talk about a Saudi family of note? I mean, this was just such a put up. And look at Pakistan as well. You had the Pakistani uh, general who had wired $100,000 to Mohammed Atta meeting with Joe Biden, you know, supposedly in some sort of, you know, conference. I think it was the day of or after 9-11, somewhere around there, like right the day of meeting with Biden. This guy had wired Atta 100 grand. I mean, it's just not even in question. So it's like, hey, give me a break. I mean, this, uh, yeah, the whole thing is such a tangled mess. Personally, I mean, I believe 9-11 was, uh, you know, a Dick Cheney I mean, it's either lie hop or, you know, my hop. You let it happen on purpose or made it happen on purpose. I mean, there was just too many, uh, too much uh, 
too much deceit going on there. And the 9-11 Commission is the Warren Commission, uh, you know, just for another event that was uh, sponsored by our intelligence services in league, in this case, with foreign powers um, for so many ulterior motives. They wanted war. They wanted Middle East, uh, you know, the, the, between the arms dealers, the arms makers, the arms armaments and the oil and everything else. I mean, you name it. I mean, there's so many little uh, little intrigues behind. I mean, so many interests were served. It's like Kennedy's assassination. So many people got their agenda, you know, moved forward because of that event, that single event. And they don't they didn't care about the bloodshed. Tyler, we're going to have to close it. Um, but Tyler, thank you very much. Tyler Nixon, Army Entry Veteran. Consular law, constitutionalist, advocate, writer, technologist, critical historian, extremist in defense of liberty. Thoughtlines, Thomas Chan. Back in a moment. Thoughtlines. Thoughtlines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. Great conversation with um, Tyler. By the way, guys, we're going to be taking your calls at 9.15. Um, we have an open segment. Yeah, we're taking them early because KJ is going to come in at 9.30. He's on the East West Coast. So it's always, you know, we try to get him in as late as possible. So 202-521-1320. 202-521-1320. That is going to be at 9.15 at the latest. Yeah, we'll be taking your calls after these headlines. First, big headline, major. The world needs to stop because Tuesday night, Billionaire philanthropist, Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates announced on Twitter that, quote, I've tested positive for COVID. I'm experiencing mild symptoms and I am following the expert's advice by isolating until I'm healthy again. Uh, That was the end of it. So he should be okay. You know, the Rona, she'll get you. Yeah. She'll get you. And you have it. You had it at one point, right? I've had it. Everyone in my household, everyone's had it. Wow. What was your symptom like? For me, I didn't know I had it, but I have other like mitigating health yeah. things going on. So it didn't so, present as hard as right, it is. So I, I, I literally thought I had allergies, um, which are for some people are very similar. Like allergies, a little little stuffiness and just feeling blah. Yeah. Because we've sluggish. had, I've known people, well, I've known people that died from it. I've known yeah, people that felt like they were hit by a Mack truck yep. even like a month afterwards. Yep. And like you said, other cases where people felt like, I had a sniffle. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say mine was a sniffle. I just felt like I had just bad allergies. And like, like maybe I was coming down with a little bit of a cold. I thought I had a sore throat, but that can be from allergies too. Exactly, right. And so, and it was- And it could be actual cold. And it was in that time frame where the weather was changing. So I thought, allergies. Yeah. So come to find out, it was COVID by way of antibody testing or else I, I wouldn't have known. And then, you know, I watched everybody else in my household. So, and it was, it affected everybody differently. The, the adults more similarly, but I mean, I have uh, my parents in the household, my husband and my son. My son was up and running in 48 hours. It just, it affected him like a regular, like, like cold, a kid basically. cold. Yeah. Like a kid cold. Um, but thank God he started off as a healthy kid. So he was able to 
just get back to normal. I think most kids get back to normal after a couple days. Um, but it was a little scary with the older folks. So, and Bill Gates, older folk. Much older. Much older folk. And, and he has the other health risks that put him at a higher risk factor of having complications. You know, it was age, it's weight. Okay, so boy. Yeah, have you not seen the new... I haven't seen him. Elon yeah. trolled him hard on Twitter. Really? Yeah, I haven't seen Bill Gates in a long time. I, I, there was like an interview, I felt like, where it's they were talking weight. about Epstein. Oh, is that what it is? I th- lost weight after my divorce. Well, some people don't, you know, he went the other way. He, yeah, he's usually a thin dude. He's not a thin man anymore. He's put it on. Wow. Yeah. So, but again, he's an older man. So you don't wish anybody, you know, ill. So I joke, but I hope he gets well soon because, again, he's an older man. Um, then in domestic news, the U.S. House of Representatives has passed a supplemental funding bill for Ukraine that'll provide the country with about $40 billion in assistance because, you know, it's they needed $7 billion more than Joe Biden had originally offered at 33. Um, so that's some of 20 billion of it is in defense aid. Take that how you will. The bill passed 366 to 55. The measure is expected to be cleared by the U.S. Senate once taken up, um, but it'll breeze right through because all of our money will just go to Ukraine. That's fine. The high-powered Hollywood attorney providing financial and strategic advice is what they're calling it now. We're calling it sugar growing for Hunter Biden. He's now in the crosshairs of the of a federal investigation into his own taxes after he bailed out Hunter Biden's late taxes to the tune of about two million bucks. So this guy's in the crosshairs of an investigation now for some shady overseas business deals. And the president's allies are starting to say, "Uh uh-oh, this guy might be a liability to us. The New York Times is reporting all this. They are reportedly uneasy over the fact that Mr. Kevin Morris, best known for brokering the half-billion-dollar licensing deal for South Park has taken on the role of close confidant to Joe Biden's eldest son. They're also concerned that the president's son to be, you know, 52 years old and receiving literally a daily allowance from this sugar bro um, could look, reflect poorly on the president. (laughs) You know. This could be impolite. (laughs) Right. Maybe, maybe not so good when your son has a random friend. Yeah, covering his expenses and whatnot. Paying for rent and food and I talk about the appearance of impropriety. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what's going on there. It's just all that's weird. Sugar bro, Kevin Morris. Uh, international news: Foreign Minister Sergey Lavrov said that he regrets the UN has missed an opportunity to reach a potential solution on the crisis there in Ukraine. The top Russian diplomat made that statement during a joint press conference with his Omani counterpart, Saeed Badr al-Busaidi, in Muscat. Quote, Taking into account the interest shown by the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, we advised him, first of all, to turn his appeals to the Kiev authorities to demand that they stop preventing civilians from leaving the areas 
of the military operation. And then the U.S. Navy has sent the USS Port Royal, a Ticonderoga-class guided missile cruiser of the 7th Fleet, to take a cruise right in between the body of water separating Taiwan from mainland China, because, you know, just Sunday cruise. Hashtag reasons. Just cruising through. The ship remained in international waters, we should note, while navigating that corridor on Tuesday in a mission the U.S. says is meant to demonstrate America's, quote, commitment to a free and open Indo-Pacific. That is their official statement. And then Tech News, a group of researchers at the University of Bath, this is in the U.K., conducted a study in which they found that taking a week-long break from social media improves one's well-being as well as reduces depression and anxiety. The authors of the study also suggest that taking a break from social media may be recommended as a way to help people manage their mental health in the future. I am no researcher, but I know that, and I concur. Uh, Earth Science News. A recent study by the World Meteorological Organization, or WMO, has indicated there is a 93% chance that at least one year out of the next five will exceed 2016 as the warmest year on record, as well as a 93% chance that the next five years will be warmer than the previous five. So it's getting warmer. Business news, consumer prices in Denmark have jumped to its highest levels in 38 years. Official figures from Statistics Denmark showed, according to that agency, the Danish consumer price index jumped from 5.4% back in March to 6.7% in April. Prices have soared amid the rising prices in global energy costs against this backdrop of what's happening in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. The specific key inflation drivers in Denmark were electricity, nat gas, food, and tobacco. I didn't know tobacco was a big thing in Denmark, but they cite tobacco. And then this day in history, going way back to the triple digits, to the year 330, Constantinople, or Byzantium, becomes the capital of the Roman Empire. Then in 868, the earliest surviving dated printed book produced in China. Then we're going to skip way ahead to 1981, the musical Cats first premiered. In 1985, 56 football fans die in a massive stadium fire. In 1996, Value Jet Flight 592 crashes into the Florida Everglades shortly after takeoff. In 1998, India executes a series of nuclear weapons tests, letting the world know folks were nuclear. And then in the year 2000, also in India, their population officially reached 1 billion with Asta Aurora named as India's 1 billionth baby. And that is going to do it for your headlines this Wednesday, May the 11th. You're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chance. You know, they're trying to pass um, the, what is it, the abortion stuff. They're putting on a show for it. 
in Congress. Yeah, they, it's never going to get passed. It's never going to pass. They don't even have the votes among Democrats to pass it, let alone filibuster and everything else. But they will make a show of it. They, they wanted to show the electorate, look what we're doing, women, to protect your rights to choice. That we didn't do for the last 50 years. 40, 50 years, right. Yeah, it's like, and now you have all these Democrats who are like, should have voted for Hillary Clinton. It's like, no, dude, not so much. And she wasn't going to do anything She wasn't going to do anything. Even if she yeah. was in that. Exactly. Line. And so it's this kind of weird situation. It's like Obama didn't even fight for his own Supreme Court pick. How are you getting on people for not putting your particular candidate in? But they're going to run with that. They're going to go with it. They're going to try to make it a campaign issue. Here's the thing, though. I don't think they're going to be able to sustain that. And the reason I say that, you mean, like, for the next seven months? Yeah. If the economy collapses, people are going to care about the economy. I mean, because let's be clear, abortion hasn't been made illegal in the United States, even though they're framing it almost in that way. There are certain states where it's been made right. illegal and or will be made illegal, but it's not the totality of the United States. So you're not going to get this kind of overt focus in some of those states that don't have to deal with this issue. Those people are going to be cared about the economy, how much money to pay for gas, oil, et cetera. And if they associate that with Biden— Oh, my God, especially if they associate with Democrats in general. Well, if the Republicans are smart. America they, first. <laughs> I keep saying true, that, that should true. be the it's, argument. It's, America it's first. Sort of MAGA, MAGA-esque. But if the Republicans are smart, what they'll do is they don't duck on, the, on this pro-choice thing. They don't duck on Roe v. Wade. If they're smart, what they do is pivot from Roe v. Wade and say, you know, they know that their stance is pro-life. We get that. But you tie that to the baby formula shortage. Yeah. You pivot and you say, but look at these babies. These babies in America are here. They're hungry. And what has Biden done about it? Right. What has he done to apply any pressure to the manufacturers, to Nestle, to you know, Amgen, whoever makes the difference? There's a gajillion yeah. different formulas, but those those specialty ones for the kids with special needs, yeah, those are the ones that are just, you can't find them. And bringing that up in context of, we've given $50 billion to Ukraine. So if the Republicans are smart, you can ride that between, you can tie this to Roe v. Wade and say, while the Democrats care about aborting babies, let's take a look at the hungry babies in America, I'm not saying this is my, you know. If yeah, I, was, I, don't, I don't know if that if works. I was a political, <laughs> that, if I was a political consultant, that rings true to a lot of ears, though. That resonates. That resonates when you say there's hungry babies in America. Yeah. But the thing that is, Republicans. stays in your mind. Yeah, but Republicans don't have a history of caring about those hungry babies. So it that's kind matter. of a difficult argument. I, I, we're talking about campaigning here, Jamar. We're not talking I, about I real politics know, and but, action. We're but, talking about campaigns. Because campaigns but, have no reflection But people are radically reality. stupid. Meaning they know the Republican history of that stuff. I mean, when Bill Clinton cut welfare, well, you heard Tyler Nixon basically said the Republicans yeah. were pushing him to do that stuff. I mean, or increasing the prison population, knowing full well that there was going to be a disparity between um, crack and cocaine, where that was going to increase of and explode by blacks. But Jim Morrill, you know full well that campaigning is no reflection on actual no, politicking. Not always. Campaigning is campaigning. But people have memories. That's the point I'm getting Campaign, at. But people have short memories. Mitt Romney, That's perfect example. When Mitt Romney made that statement about takers and everything else. Well, in that campaign, Obama spent a lot of money, risk, by the way, um, in those various states, or the battleground states. And his main message was, this guy's a plutocrat. 
This guy's out of touch. This guy doesn't care. And in spending that money, the belief was if I could set a context for the way that you perceive this particular person, then whatever they're saying about themselves is not going to fly in regards to it's not going to stick. And more importantly, Mitt Romney stepped into it where <laughs> yes. all of that stuff that Obama had been saying up to that point well, that was rained like the perfect storm yeah. of like Mitt Romney being an idiot, not blah, 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 don't, doesn't know how to because he knows he's a silver spoon guy. Yes. He like so he can't he can't get out of his own head to defend himself. But that's my point. Obama set the context and the framing of it going forward, knowing full had, well that oh if he would God. say something, he had so it was going to go against swagger. it. Yeah. He had, Obama had so much swagger. He owned the press. The press fawned all over him. Yes. You can't compare Mitt Romney to that. I mean, I no, like, you, you miss what I'm saying. It's not that I'm comparing Mitt Romney to anything. I'm making a point about the political it, it campaign. It's stuck. Right. It's and stuck because it's because stuck. Obama had the swagger to be able to pin him. It's not as, just the swagger. Just it's boom. just good politics where you're good setting, campaigning. you're framing campaigning. how people are going to perceive a particular event. The point that I'm making here is the Trump fact that the that framing could take place means that trying to convince the public of something that they know is not true is not going to give them the bang for the buck. I mean, that's what I mean. Like the abortion. Trump did the same thing, Jamal. He was able to, to label his opponents oh, right. on both sides, even in his own party. Yeah. He was like, Marco, little, was little, Marco? little Marco. Yeah. He had um, low, low energy Jeb. Yeah, low energy Jeb. He just, everything <laughs> stuck. Because, the majority of stuff really bad. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I mean, does it really matter, you know, once you actually get elected that you. Jeb was low energy. He was, he's tepid. Yeah. He's tepid. But I'm not saying I'm a, a Jeb fan, but at least he, you know, he had some fairly decent bona fides, sort of. I mean, at least he wasn't, you know, just a reality show millionaire. He's a typical like, Republican. He was a typical Republican, yeah. right. So, but my point is, is that these campaign slogans, the Democrats are limited right now yeah. to this row thing. Yeah. The Republicans, it's theirs to oh, lose. Oh, man, it, it is. It is theirs to lose. They need to They need to pick the right pony. Economy. And pivot. I mean, economy. the economy is it. Slam the but, economy but and they point to Biden and say it is his fault. Because that's what Biden is going to do, by the way. That's what he address, did in that speech. They, they're they going to have to address the Democrats with this row thing. And what you do, what you do politically as a campaign is you you touch on row and you pivot Move to to, something else. to the yeah. alive babies, yeah. not the babies in the womb. You pivot to the babies that are alive. I think that's treacherous. I I, no, I, under, I feel winning, you. That's I, a winning thing. It's again. You, you show hungry babies in America. You go to the Midwest and you show a working class, you know, waitress mom. Who do you believe? Can't find, that believe Republicans cares poster? about babies. That's what I'm I mean. not saying they do. I mean, I'm fact, saying that's the, a winning. That's a winning it, it, campaign. It, it, Getting the public to believe that you're lying to them about something is not a winning campaign. No, and, it is. And it is a the argument campaign. that often typically takes place is Republicans care all as much about the babies until they're born. Meaning that's an argument that has been run for years. No, that's fine. Yeah. And we, so it's like you and I know that. So that's basically that's running into a headwind. I agree with you that they need to. They're going to have to say something about abortion, but they that needs to. to be like. Hit that tepidly and hitting the economy extremely hard. Oh, I yeah. mean, like, but that's how you go hard. Is then you pivot away from babies in the womb. You pivot to hungry babies, and then you pivot to this is Biden's economy. This is who do you want? You know, representing your interests and in capital. And health. by the way, hit blacks directly, meaning go after this notion of 
African-Americans are being hurt by Joe Biden's policies. These people have voted for him to 90 percent. But, you know, they're the poorest and definitely hit this notion that we're going to be the ones who are fighting for the economy. We're going to be. I, look, for sure. I thousand percent agree with you on that part. I mean, I, that is a difficult. Camp- campaigns uh, are no reflection of reality, of, the reality no, of, of what gets done on Capitol Hill or down the street in the White House. That's just not what happens. What do you mean? I mean, um, um, Obama totally didn't put in the public. What is the, that? The, what is that well, thing called? Where he attacked Hillary Gitmo. Clinton for? Close Gitmo. Close Gitmo. Right. And eight years later, not so much. When he left, was Gitmo still open? Or Joe he Biden. transferred a couple of the detainees out. Okay, great. Did he push for his public option? Gitmo still. Not open. so much. Not so much. Right. Did he push for the legalization of marijuana? Not so much. He also said, "Keep your doctors." Not so much. Not so much. Not so much. So again, campaigning is is one thing. It is a place for slogans. Mm-hmm. It's a place for pejoratives against your opponents to stick because it changes once November comes and the, the results come in. Yeah. Everything you just said is the campaign. Yes. That is not politicking in D.C. What's wild about it, they even talk about it in those terms. Like they would be like, oh, that's a slick um, campaign pivot. What do you mean? You just lied? Is that what you call? Is that what you call like the pivot? A lie? He he said one thing in the election and then said something else later. It's like okay, yeah, dude, guess. But no, I agree with you on. I agree with you on ninety percent of that. That yeah, they're gonna hammer that, and that's oh, gonna be what they use. I didn't realize. Holy, holy. yeah, we have callers. Yeah, we've got. So callers. let's go to Tarif, New Orleans. What's going on, Tarif? How y'all doing? First, I'd like to say free Julian Assange. I had six comments, but I don't think I can get through them. Oh, yeah, six, Tariq, let's we, not do six. We gotta keep it at like two. Yeah. Pick your top two. Okay, my top two, that's what I'm going to do then. I'm going to do my top two. Thank you. All right, here we go. Remember yesterday I was talking about how um, Odessa and Nikolov mm-hmm. were sending grain for the Lend Lease thing? Well, starting yesterday, the day before last, Russia is now hitting Nikolov, which once they conquer that region, then they're going to turn left and go into Transnistria, cutting off Odessa. Then they once they go on Odessa, that's... They're going to have th- that southern part of Ukraine. So they're already hitting that with artillery right now in Nicholas. All right. And also, my second comment, remember yesterday when I told you all about the um, Ukrainian spokes off when came out and talking about giving, you know, a subtle threat to to the EU and U.S.? Well, they got two aces up these sleeves, and they're using one of them right now. The first ace is the gas line. They just cut one of the gas lines off. Yeah. And we reported that this morning. We were talking to Sloboda about it, like how weird that was. Because Russia's gas problem is basically saying, look, there's nothing affecting this um, pipeline. And Sloboda made the point, eight years of war at this point, where the Ukrainian government was basically attacking the regions. Well, that didn't stop the pipeline either. Ukraine was still getting transit fees up until, what, you know, I suspect they're still getting them in other pipelines. But please continue, Tarif. I mean, yeah, that was wow this morning. Reading that. Well, they just played the other hand, the last hand, but not least, and they can really wreck, they can really screw over NATO. I mean, um, Europe and also the U.S., especially the U.S. You see them Bayou Labs, those 30 plus Bayou Labs that was in Ukraine? What if these, these those dope fiends like Zelensky and the other uh, Azov, Italian people in the SBU took some of the evidence and saved it for a rainy day to be one day used against Europe and the United States? If they don't get what they want with the seven billion dollars in the EU membership, remember Joe Biden and the British and the EU put themselves in this position. Now gave um, them the EU, they gave the Ukrainian people a spotlight right now in the UN. So the um, Zelensky and them don't get what they want with the seven billion dollars in the EU membership. 
the the last ace they're gonna pay is those bio labs and say, oh yeah, we do got the vials and, uh, and the witnesses and the, and, the, and the. Oh, I see. You're saying that if they don't get what they want, they're gonna come out and basically um, blackmail. That they're using the information that they have at their disposal as a blackmail to the European Union or the U.S. in order to get them to do X or Y. Exactly. Or they might just release it if they don't get what they want because they're being destroyed in the southern part of um, Ukraine. They're going to lose most of their good fertile land. It's going to be it for the land lease. Thank y'all for Wait, wait, wait. Tarif, give me one more story. Give me your third one. You went through those pretty quick. Just give me one more. Okay, one more story. Oh, Lord. <laughs> You say you had six. That should be easy. <laughs> that should be easy. Four, no, I have four, but okay, I'm going to talk about the Snake Island. I'm going to talk about the other three, other three tomorrow. Okay, Snake Island. They lost seven, eight people on Snake Island, the Ukrainian military. Seven, eight people. Four ships. Four plane, five total planes. Four helicopters and about 30 UAVs, of which 11 of them was... Um, was the million dollar uh, uh, um, Turkish drones, right? Why they lost all that equipment? So they got a speculation circulating around. I don't know how true it is that the people law, uh, led their charge on that island was two officers, two foreign officers, one British major and one uh, United States uh, Marine, a lieutenant colonel. Speculation that they, they went there thinking that everything was secured Till explosions start happening, they start getting hit with artillery and everything like that, and they think those two officers died. And what happened is this: they tried to. The rumor is that that's why you have so much equipment lost, and so many people died because they tried to re, um, retrieve those bodies, and they had no success. So we're gonna see it as this the story go along, because that was a lot of loss. There was a lot of loss. And especially on Victory Day. Yeah. I think it was Alexander McCurris. He was speculating that the reason they took that campaign was in order to kind of like, oh, look at them losing on Victory Day. You know, the great patriotic war basically trying to smear it with a loss. Well, they took a loss um, in that. Tarif, thank you, my man. Much appreciated. Let's go to Brave ATL. What's going on, Brave? You call it early today. Good. You have about four minutes. What's going on, guys? Um, real quick, um, Manila, I, I get what you're saying it's concerning the, uh, the good politics in the sense that it's a good, it's good, it's good political lies, good political manipulation. Bingo. They do constantly. Um, what I want to touch on very quickly is um, one. Uh, so Joe Biden and uh, just the elite period and our leadership in Washington. Um, so they, they've just passed with with no argument and then bu- uh, then bumping up the money for Ukraine as yeah. was almost like what forty billion. Seven billion dollars up to forty billion. Yeah. Extra. Amazing. Right. Right. So this is this is after. Um, this is after um, over the past couple of years or the past few administrations. This is after uh, passing what amounts to reparations for um, Jewish Americans, for uh, Native Americans, and for um, uh, Latina and um, now let's just say Latina. Let's let's say um, undocumented people who who've had a hard time crossing the border, dreamers, passing what, what amounts to reparations for all of them, right? Uh, but failing to pass the George Floyd bill. Uh, failing to pass any kind of economic um, uh, responses to black Americans or ADOS, as I, as I like to refer, right? Not that BIPOC crap. Right? And, American descendants of slaves for people who are like, what does ADOS mean? Right, making numerous promises and keeping none of it, right? So um, at this point, black people should should uh, are out of their minds to continue to vote. For, I'm not saying vote for Republicans, but I'm daggone sure saying that uh, we're out of our minds to continue to put Democrats in office just to keep, just, just to push away the evil, scary, horrible, uh, racist, Nazi uh, Republicans uh, so we can vote in the Democrats who are sitting all of our money to Nazis. 
Yeah. Yeah. Think about that, right? <laughs> Think about that. I mean, that's why I kind of made this point. Like, African-Americans, like, Republicans, if they are bright, they would start to target that demographic. And they would point to, look, Biden is doubling down on policies that are basically increasing your lab, your bills, that making you that much more vulnerable in regards to your economic living situation, while simultaneously giving $40 billion to another country. I mean, it's astonishing. I agree with you, um, Brave. Totally agree with you. I brought the point up to, um, I called into the, um, to the backstory and brought the point up to Lee, uh, maybe like a couple, couple weeks, a couple days ago, a week ago or so, at, or at posing the question of uh, why don't Republicans hop on, I mean, this is, this is, like, this is like me. This is, this is like God's given, God sent gifts they could tie um, the, the Democrats to this war and say, you guys are accusing us constantly of being uh, racist and, and Nazis and all this stuff, but you're literally sending money to Nazis and there's documentation, there's news and everything, right? But, uh, you know, the problem is that the Republican Party, uh, the elite there as well, are in support of the war machine, so it doesn't matter. One thing I'd like to raise before I get off is um, with, the talks of, um, with the talks of baby formula and things like that, they, to the high gas prices. Is anyone pointing out the price, or just, just for yourselves, have you noticed the price of meat? Like, where I, I'm, in, I'm in Georgia, right? Packs of meat that were at one point six and $7, whether it's chicken or beef or whatever, are now upwards of $18, $20. I saw a pack of meat yesterday of uh, chicken breast for $27. I'm in the store grocery shopping. I'm, I'm noticing everybody next to me, and they're like looking at the meat, and they're looking at their list, and they're putting it back. They might get one so right here, milk, 13%, appliances, 12%, fish, 11%, eggs, 11%, coffee, 11%, food at home, 10%, and beef, 16%. Yeah. Guys, is it at all a coincidence that there has been a rash of food manufacturing plants and, you know, like uh, whether it's, it's the beef processing plants or like whether they process chicken, we've had a rash of fires. Oh, at the um, processing plants. At these processing plants across this country. So while we're we're already in an inflationary period, right? So the prices are already getting spiked. Then there's a constriction of the supply chain because there's these big old plants all across this country. Why are there suddenly fires at all of these plants? So there's a a a, a breakup of the supply chain with that as well. That's also adding to the prices going up. And no one seems to be batting an eye to say, that's weird. What's causing all these fires at specifically food manufacturing plants? It is very weird. Um, Brave, it's like I did, it's weird like the biolabs disappearing. Yeah. Brave, I did mention it this morning in the monologue. Um, but yeah, it can't be overstated enough. 18% for bacon, 18% for oranges, 16% for beef, 13% for chicken. $27, $27 for a pack of chicken breasts. Wow. That's insane. I don't care what planet you live on, what city, what state, what multiverse. That's insane. So, uh, yeah, that, that's crazy. And, and there's stories simultaneously running of how they're trying to grow meat and uh, making using bugs instead of so, I'm just going to say great reset and leave it alone. Oh, that's gross. <laughs> that's so gross. I don't, I don't know why that's gross to me, though, like growing meat. Like, as opposed to murdering an animal, ripping its hides out, pulling out its organs. Like, for some reason, the growing oh, like, feels more disgusting. Growing. Yeah. Gro- like, like, lab like, growing grown. in a lab-grown meat. Yeah. I, like, like lab-grown muscle. Weird. What they would use and yeah. say, this is chicken. Like, artificial. Yeah. It it's, just it's it feels neat, gross but, to me. Well, the weird thing is, is it's still, I guess, the, I know they're working on this. It's like the early stages. I'm not talking about beyond beef or yeah. beyond meat. I'm talking about like the actual lab, lab grown, literally like, lab grown like beef. Like fiber, muscle fiber yes. and tissue. That's 
just weird. It feels gross. It feels so gross. And it was like the last caller. Who was it yesterday that brought up the artificial wombs? Yeah. Oh, I know you talked about. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember. The la- very last caller. Saying Elon Musk wanted to have artificial well, wombs. I or looked something. up the artificial wombs, and this is tied to what you all are talking about here with yeah. the art. It's not artificial meat. That's the thing. No, it's, it's, the it's like lab-grown meat. Lab I think is what they call meat, it. Meat, which super weird. They were grown. They they grew a baby lamb in this artificial womb already. Yeah. So it is really a. It's a gross new thing. I don't know why it's so gross, but it just seems very it gross. It feels gross to me. It feels yeah. gross. Yeah. But logically, when, when I was reading the stories, I'm, it was hard for me to separate the, the, ew, the ick the, uh, yeah. from my brain. But my logical brain was going, okay, this, this is a, a fascinating new development. Yeah. Science, you know, like this has so many implications it can have in the future. But I couldn't remove the ick. Yeah, the ick factor just, is just ugh. so intense. Um, yeah, I feel you. I feel you on that. Ugh. I feel you on that. But look, they may have this kind of advertising campaign like they did with cigarettes. Like when cigarettes first came out, they seemed to be feminine, um, unmanly, and that type of stuff. And then oh. they started having this campaign where they have the Marlboro Man. He's smoking his cigarette. I, but, want, I wonder if this is them trying to push everyone into eating Beyond Burger. Yeah, Beyond stuff. Burger, right? Like the fake, the totally fake meat. Mm-hmm. And drifting us away from cows. It would be beneficial to our um, environment. Labor. Yes. Yes. Big time. Especially but, for the amount that those animals consume in yeah, relation yeah. to the amount they produce. But I wonder if this is the kind of, you know, an underhanded way to do it. Trying to just kind push of you guys a little bit. Push you all that way into being quasi-vegetarian. <laughs> Let's do this. Let's take a break on that it factor. You guys are joined. Uh, fault lines. Thomas. Chan. Back in a moment with the one and only KJ No. We're going to be talking about weird provocations taking place in regards to Taiwan, where the United States State Department has basically removed that part that says the one China policy out of the State Department documents, which, of course, is somewhat provocative on its face. So we're going to talk to KJ No about it and get the lowdown of what's going on. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and smash that rumble button. If indeed you're listening to this on Rumble. Also, if you want to join in on the conversation, usually you can get us by phone. But at the very least, you can get us by chat or a tweet. But with no further avail, let's get to our story. So, yes, as I was mentioning earlier, the State Department removed from their website the fact that they recognize Taiwan as part of China under the PRC government. And brings up this whole thing of China independence or Taiwan independence. Keep in mind, there's a strategic ambiguity. That's supposed to be associated with Taiwan, where the U.S. accepts that they are under China by the same token. The U.S. also, weirdly enough, calls itself Taiwanese or Taiwan's protector and sells them overpriced weapons and <laughs> over this. But to have a conversation about what this means and how China is regarding this, because, again, in every bit as much as Ukraine being a red line for Russia, Taiwan is a red line for China. And again, they know it. And yet they're still taking provocative action. To have a conversation about this, we're joined with the one and only KJ No. 
K.J. Noah is a journalist, political analyst, writer, and teacher specializing in the geopolitics of the Asia-Pacific region. He's a contributor to the book Capitalism on a Ventilator. Once censored by Amazon, it is now available at iacenter.org. K.J., thank you for joining us, man. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well, thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Absolutely. So when I read this, I thought to myself, oh my God, you're already provoked a conflict with Russia over um, Ukraine. And that just provoked a conflict over that. You've basically have put the world into this um, economic war and everything else that is having disastrous consequences on the Western governments and um, in the United States, Western governments of Europe and in the United States. So now it seems that China And I suspect this has a lot to do with China not falling in line and backing the U.S. position, which would have just been nonsense on its face, considering that the relationship that China and Russia has. And that if anything happens to Russia, China will be by itself in the crosshairs. Next, China knows that they're not stupid. So the U.S.-Taiwan relations, State Department, the United States and Taiwan enjoy a robust unofficial relationship. The 1979 USPRC joint communique switched diplomatic recognition from Taipei to Beijing. In the joint communique, the United States recognized the government of the People's Republic of China as the sole legal government of China, acknowledging the Chinese position that there is but one China and Taiwan is part of China. It continues. The United States does not support Taiwan independence. So fast forward to now. All of that's gone. All of that's gone. And so. It's right here. It says, though the U.S. does not have diplomatic relations with Taiwan, we have a robust unofficial relationship as well as abiding interests in maintaining peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. Consistent with the Taiwan Relations Act, the United States makes available defensive articles and services as necessary to enable Taiwan to maintain a sufficient self-defense capability. The United States continues to encourage peaceful resolution of the cross-strait differences consistent with the wishes and best interests of the people of Taiwan. There is nothing here about this kind of, um, you know, the United States does not recognize um, Taiwan in this way. So from your standpoint, what is China's response to this? I mean, I would imagine they had to have seen it at this point. It was making news. Yes. Well, you know, it's a very strange uh, type of provocation because when you have a public-facing document like that, um, you know, which essentially lays out your official position to another country, you don't change it surreptitiously. You know, it's like, you know, let's say you have a social media profile and you surreptitiously update your status from, you know, married to single. You know, um, unless you really are single, you can uh, imagine that that would create quite a bit of consternation. And that's exactly what's happening right now. So the Chinese are actually pretty befuddled by it, but they don't like it. I mean, the closest we have to a response is from the Global Times. And, you know, the Global Times is criticizing it strongly. Uh, You know, they think that, you know, this is a foolish and stupid act, more of the same uh, as they've seen before. They're not, you know, making, you know, a diplomatic big deal of it yet. Mm -hmm. They have criticized it. And I think they're very, very puzzled because it's one more provocation in this continual salami slicing of China's red line, starting with Pompeo's declaration. He, you know, declared a reverse Kissinger in July of uh, 2020. And then this is being followed up uh, practically by, you know, uh, almost a de facto recognition of Taiwan. Pelosi was going to visit, uh, you know, others have 
visited. And uh, currently, there's also, uh, you know, what we call a, a sense of Congress uh, uh, article circulating, which is saying that um, the belief is that, you know, that the China, uh, sorry, Taiwan is part of the U.S. quote unquote Indo-Pacific strategy, right. uh, and that it sees, uh, you know, uh, you know that it will do everything possible. To militarize uh, Taiwan uh, and to emphasize its capacities uh, to support an asymmetric war of Taiwan against China. So these are very, very um, ominous, you know, developments. And I assure you, the Chinese are watching this. Yeah. Very to be fair, they do say the United States has a long-standing one-China policy, which is guided by Taiwan Relations Act, three U.S. joint communiques, and the six assurances. But there is a clear difference and distinction between those two documents, whereas one is very clear. The United States recognizes the government of the People's Republic of China as the sole legal government of China, acknowledging China's position that there's but one China. That is very strong and straightforward, um, and it's the way it's depicted, not to mention the United States does not support Taiwan independence. So, yeah, I agree with you. Like changing the status in such a way has connotations, and it gets across something or something is implied in doing so. And to your point, China hasn't necessarily responded, let's say over-responded on it, but I would imagine they are looking into this. I mean, are they taking this as steps towards a provocation in Taiwan? Because in the same way that this took place in Ukraine, well, Taiwan clearly being this kind of, and for that matter, Hong Kong also, being this, let's say, weak link or this kind of aspect of the country that can be used to pull the country proper into a larger conflict on some level. I mean, are they just looking at it as, okay, this is one more step in that direction? Yes, I think so. I mean, you know, what they have said in previous, uh, uh, you know, démarche, previous statements, uh, is that, you know, you have, quote-unquote, trampled our red lines. And this is just one more incursion on that front. But, you know, you're absolutely correct. Um, they do say, uh, they do mention the Taiwan Relations Act. And that is, you know, uh, you know, once again, to look at the law, you know, the, the three communiques are considered to be established international law. They're state-to-state -state, uh, protocols that are agreed upon and established. And they have kept the peace for over 40 years. And they've led to, you know, serious development on both sides uh, of the Taiwan Straits. But when they fold that in with the TRA, the TRA is a little trigger. The TRA says that uh, if China uh, tries anything, uh, tries to, uh, you know, reunify Taiwan uh, through military means, then the U.S., uh, you know, reserves itself the right to defend Taiwan or to supply it with arms of a, a nature that it can allow it to defend itself. Well, the problem with the TRA is first that it goes against the spirit uh, of the one China policy and the three communiques, that is, you know, Taiwan is a province of China, but also that the Chinese themselves have a law, the 2005 Anti-Secession Act, which says that if it looks like there is foreign intervention, 
that Taiwan is, you know, encouraged to become independent or that there's no hope of peaceful unification, then China itself reserves the right to take military action. So there's a kind of reciprocal uh, trigger involved. That is to say, uh, you know, China will intervene if there's foreign intervention and uh, the TRA says if there's no military intervention, then the U.S. gives itself the right to intervene. So this is a very, very bad situation. Uh, and, you know, once again, you know, these are triggers for conflict. I cannot imagine what the State Department is thinking right now as it's doing this, other than a desire to have what Kurt Campbell said, a two-front war. He has said that he believes that it's possible for the United States to wage war on two fronts, as it did, for example, during World War II. Well, that's not exactly historically correct. But I think this type of thinking, the neocon extremism, the neocon hawkishness and belligerence, I think, is very, very dangerous. Absolutely. Uh, KJ, I want to bring up another point here is that the ASEAN leaders, the leaders of Brunei, Cambodia, Indonesia, Laos, Malaysia, Myanmar, the Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, and Vietnam have just descended upon Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is hosting this year's ASEAN summit. Cambodia is the chair of uh, the association this year. They will begin the summit officially tomorrow. How do you expect Joe Biden? to lead the conversation there, um, especially in the way of the tensions rising between the U.S. and mainland China over Taiwan? Well, you know, first, the the simple fact that they're meeting uh, in Washington, I think that in and of itself is a huge statement. And it's clear what the agenda is. The agenda is to increase influence, for the U.S. to increase its influence, and it wants to pressure countries to pick a side. Uh, and uh, ASEAN, you know, traditionally has not wanted that. It's always been about uh, consensus. You know, they've always had a culture of slow but, uh, you know, uh, consensual decision-making. And it's unlikely that they will cooperate with the United States, in particular because most of them uh, see China as their, uh, you know, most important trading partner. But there are a few, uh, uh, you know, members, you know, for example, uh, Singapore, for example, that might uh, serve the U.S. Uh, US's designs in a more active fashion. And I think the U.S. is trying to break ASEAN or try to force it to pick sides. Now, explain to me for the moment what ASEAN is going to talk about. Um, I did see one topic uh, being Myanmar, but what else are they going to, what are they coming together to discuss? Meaning, I'm trying to get the significance of the meeting and what the meeting is trying to accomplish. Well, you know, there are a whole bunch of carrots and sticks involved. I mean, uh, you know, Trump had an ASEAN policy, uh, you know, which is largely uh, mercantile uh, and, uh, and dismissive. But uh, the Biden administration is trying to re-engage. And, for example, uh, Malaysia is, you know, interested in chipsets uh, with uh, chipset agreements uh, with the United States. Uh, and uh, there are other trade proposals that are in the works. But the fact is, once again, uh, as I said, the U.S. is trying to uh, 
promote or enforce uh, a picking of sides. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, there's a larger kind of economic and industrial and trade agenda, which is at the bottom of it, uh, a geostrategic and military agenda that they're trying to enforce. One more thing. Let's move to the Philippines for a moment, because we basically just had an election in the Philippines. Um, a gentleman who basically won the election, Marcos. The younger Marcos got 90 percent yeah, of the vote. A landslide. And they're saying that the election is legit. So this is not a situation where um, um, this was, you know, a dodgy election. He won that. Now, if we remember, Marcos, or let's say his dad, yes. was considered um, a dictator. Yeah, to put it mildly. And uh, all sorts of domestic abuses and everything else. Sure. And so trying to kind of rehabilitate the image, it was kind of weird mm-hmm. that he was able to dominate um, the election like this. Why was he able to win with this much support after Duterte? Well, I think uh, he was he was not an outstanding candidate. Uh, and as you point out, he has all the... Uh, baggage of his uh, family name, that is his father's dictatorship. Uh, the father was a kleptocrat. But let's not forget that the father was a U.S. dictator, a U.S.-supported uh, dictator, mm-hmm. supported kleptocrat. I mean, the Philippines was essentially a client state, just as, for example, South Korea, Indonesia, uh, and Taiwan. So he fits into that mold of anti-communist uh, despots. But uh, the key factor which allowed him to uh, defeat the opposition or the key opposition candidate was the fact that he was joined in his candidacy by the daughter of the current incumbent Duterte. Uh, And that brought uh, a large groundswell of support, which allowed him to have this, you know, massive, uh, you know, electoral win. Well, I think what that signals to us is that, you know, there is still continuous and uh, abiding support for Duterte, regardless of what, what, how one sees his presidency. Uh, and that shows also a continuity that this new administration is likely to continue the policies of Duterte, uh, in particular in its foreign relations with China. Well, I mean, right here, Marcos Jr. said that he made it clear that he would not lean either to China or the United States, it would only be pro-Philippines, basically Philippines first. He has repeatedly expressed his desire to develop relations with China, call for a solution to the South China Sea issue through dialogue, and describe China as a friend. And this is coming out of Global Times. It says these remarks suggesting his reluctance of taking sides have stimulated, stimulated, I like that word, some forces in the United States and the West. As a result, some U.S. and Western outlets have begun labeling him as son of a dictator. After Marcos Jr. secured the win, they win, they warned that kowtowing to China would put Philippines once again in a weak position. Now, of course, this is the U.S. media reporting this, and then I'm never going to report anything good about the United States and China. I mean, about Russia and China. So there's that. But what's reading between the lines on this, it gets across that, hey, wait a minute, you're going to be like, like, like the guy from Pakistan, like Imran Khan, and you're going to um, make keep this relationship with China in this way, as opposed to getting closer to the U.S. Could you explain Duterte's position in regards to the U.S. and how this is expected to govern, meaning Marcos Jr.? Well, you know, Duterte was uh, a nationalist, and what he tried to do was steer a path through a very difficult and narrow channel between the United States 
and China. And as the U.S. is trying to do with all the ASEAN states, uh, the U.S. is trying to force uh, the Philippines into its corner. Now, once again, as I say, the Philippines has been a U.S. client state for decades during uh, the Vietnam War. For example, Subic Bay, the world's largest military base, larger than 19 countries, was an important power projection platform, uh, for example, during the Vietnam War. But Duterte, you know, is uh, hewing uh, a nationalist line that is moderately independent and certainly playing off the big powers against each other. And one of the things that Duterte did, which was, you know, almost unforgivable in the eyes of Washington, was the U.S. spent a lot of time and money engineering a lawfare uh, type uh, situation where it showed in uh, a, a bought and paid for tribunal, a private tribunal, that China had, you know, violated international law, which U.S. doesn't subscribe to, that it had violated international law uh, by its uh, militarizing some of the features in the South China Sea. Well, this was supposed to be used as a trigger to delegitimate and to provoke China. And uh, Duterte, when he came into power, he essentially ignored the finding. You know, this was a lot of lawfare done by CSIS and other, you know, U.S. deep state uh, agencies, essentially, to undermine China. And Duterte said, you know, I don't care about this. This will be a bilateral relationship where we'll talk to China one-on-one. We'll figure it out, which is what, you know, all the ASEAN countries have been doing prior to that. Essentially, he was to, uh, steering an independent line. And the U.S. did not like that. And of course, then, uh, you know, as, as is the case, uh, you know, they spent continual and, uh, you know, considerable uh, political capital to try to undermine him. But uh, not only was he not undermined, although he did not kick the U.S. troops and bases out of the Philippines, he hewed to his own line. Uh, and now his daughter, Uh, is uh, going to be vice president. Uh, Again, we see that that line will uh, continue and we can expect more pressure and more condemnation and more types of uh, disturbances in the Philippines. This is not going to be easy for them. KJ, another another group meeting that I think we need to keep our eyes on uh, is the upcoming June BRICS meeting that China will be hosting. Um, and we know that Russia is a member, obviously, that is the R in BRICS. Uh, Vladimir Putin is set to attend uh, the meeting. The date is, a you know, TBD at this point. But the BRICS summit will likely happen late June. That's according to Chinese uh, state media. And I, I understand that this is supposed to be an economic alliance. But as Jamaral and I were speaking about earlier today is that it seems nowadays economics and politics, even if in, in these alliances, they are inextricable, it seems like, at this day and age. So when the BRICS group meets in China next month, how do you expect that meeting to go, especially in the sense that China has a bone to pick with the U.S. over Taiwan? Russia obviously has a bone to pick with the U.S., over what happened in Ukraine and the events that uh, preceded 
this current war that we're seeing. How do you expect this meeting to go down? Because none of these BRICS countries have joined the U.S. in sanctioning Russia. Yes, absolutely. And that's the key, uh, you know, factor. India, uh, which was part of the Quad, has refused because it's historically close ties to Russia to refuse to join U.S. sanctions uh, and uh, along with 160 plus other countries. So what the U.S. had tried to do with its sanctions uh, has largely blown back on Europe and also showed its inability to have its way as it has had in the past. Uh, the BRICS meeting simply reaffirms this. So you will, it's really the first time Putin, Xi, and Modi uh, will be together physically, uh, you know, in, in a very, very long time. And, you know, the key issue is trade, once again, trade normalcy, uh, and, uh, you know, negotiating and making sure uh, that, you know, investment, trade, and, uh, you know, uh, the, for example, uh, uh, IT, uh, you know, uh, systems are in place so that they can facilitate, uh, you know, the bilateral trade between these countries. But it is also being counterbalanced a few days later by a meeting of the G7. And so, once again, we can see, as you pointed out, you know, the politic, politicization of geoeconomic blocks as geostrategic blocks. And I think that, you know, uh, largely it will be a photo op, uh, but, you know, simply to have Modi and Putin and Bolsonaro uh, and uh, Ramaphosa uh, and Xi Jinping all together on the same stage, uh, that in itself sends a very, very powerful message to the G7 uh, and to the NATO bloc. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, very interesting. KJ, great conversation, my man. I really appreciate um, you joining us. I know you're in. Um, Los Angeles. Not, well, I don't know if it's Los Angeles. I know you're in California. <laughs> yeah. And so I know it's an early morning um, anytime you come on, but absolutely appreciate your knowledge um, and context and information um, on issues of China and the South Pacific. So thank you very much. KJ Noah is a journalist, political analyst, writer, and teacher specializing in the geopolitics of the Asia Pacific region. He's a contributor to the book Capitalism on a Ventilator. Once censored by Amazon, it is now available at iacenter.org. Um, there's also a website. HTTPS, uh, what is this? PeacePivot.org. Great conversation. Excuse me. Yeah, Great conversation, you. especially thank with all that, these KJ. summits. Yeah, um, he's on top of all of them. And, and to be, I mean, it's California time. Yeah. So it's so early for him to know, oh, all yeah. the, like to get your brain moving this quickly. But KJ's got, I mean, he's on top of it. There was once when we called KJ, I think it was accidentally, it was my fault, at 4.30 in the morning. There 4.30. Yeah, there 4.30. Yeah. He oh was on it. It was Whoa, still excellent. Word. Yeah, because it was like, Oh, wow. He's at 4.30? He's on it. At that point, it was like, okay, love the guy. The guy definitely knows his stuff. We got to bring him back. So now he's great. And at this point, China is a major player in these kind of geopolitics of this stuff, especially with them sitting back, watching the world eat itself um, in this kind of weird way. And I agree with him on the second point. Like, it is hysteria to engage in one word that you provoked. And, and then think and you she, can do another? Yeah. Come on. How weird is that? I mean, the consequences that we've been dealing with are extreme. And now it's like, this, let's make that worse. Jamarl, it goes to show that the deep state still lives in that Cold War era mindset yeah. that they think this is the same country from the 1940s, 50s. Not that. And not knowing reality. A man's got to know his limitations and lead to disaster. Um, I want to thank our engineers, producer. I want to thank my co-host, Manila Chan. My name is Jamarl Thomas. I want to thank all of you. All you the guys rumblers. Have a phenomenally awesome day. 
See you bright and early Thursday morning. Bye, everybody.